Hello, everybody, and welcome to the 298th episode of MTG Fast Finance, the podcast that's the 69 out of 100 in your weekly podcast schedule. MTG Fast Finance is your weekly podcast covering the world of Magic the Gathering collection management and speculation. I'm your host, James Chilcott, a.k.a. at MTG Critic on Twitter. My co-host this week is Travis Allen at Wizard Bumpin' on Twitter, and we're here to help you folks make and save money playing our favorite game, Magic the Gathering. Hey guys, glad to be here and looking forward to sharing some valuable information with all of you. Our show is produced by mtgprice.com, the leading MTG finance community. Sign up today at mtgprice.com to plan your specs, chat on Discord, and read articles by some of the best financial minds in the hobby. MTG Fast Finance is proudly sponsored by Cool Stuff Inc., where you can find all sorts of cool, nerdy stuff in stock, including all the best in Magic the Gathering single sealed product and a plethora of other collectibles. Use the promo code FINANCE5, that's the number 5, during checkout at CoolStuffInc.com to save 5% off your order and support this podcast. Uh, Travis, what's on the agenda this week? This week, I figured we'd run through four segments. Segment one will be our MTGO Metagame Week interview. We have two modern challenges to use look at with uh, some interesting results this week, uh, especially so. Segment two, our top paper movers, some cards that have moved the most in price this week along with our MTGO movers as well. Segment three, our cards to watch, some stuff James and I will run through that we think looks good in the future. And finally, uh, segment four, topic of the week, we have Jason all on to talk EDH. And we had a lot of fun with uh, Ellie last time, but she has since been drafted into the Wizards War. So, well, specifically, we're doing the Crimson Vow set review. We should make that clear. Uh, oh, did I? What did, did I actually not set, say? Crimson Vow set review. Just said we we're talking EDH, which is basically oh. true as far as this set goes. But just <laughs> to sorry. be specific, the Crimson review set, Crimson Vow set review with Jason, mostly EDH. Yeah. Uh, and we wish we could have had Ellie on, but unfortunately, yep. she's not a Wizards employee, can't join us, but uh, we wish her all the best. Yeah, doing well over there, as, as, as it seems. So, uh, before we get into all that, we should probably talk about the big reveal in the arrival of the latest drop, the latest secret layer drop into vendor hands this week, and player hands, uh, I suppose. Yeah. They they finally turned the corner and did that thing we we predicted they would do a couple times on this cast, which is join the sports card world in numbering magic cards. So we're not talking about the gold stamp foils for pre-releases that tell you the date it was released on. We're talking about them finally getting their act together and putting out 100 uh, card limited series where they only print 100 copies of a single card. And apparently they've decided to fool around with that in the process of uh, planting them in secret layer releases. Um, if you don't uh, buy and sell secret layer releases, you may not know this, but typically what happens is there's a drop, it's got a certain number of cards in it, and usually there is a surprise per unit. So down below uh, the main portion of the card packaging, underneath there's usually one extra card. They started that off with the Stained Glass Planeswalkers from War of the Spark. They've done a few other things since, and apparently there is now a very, very low chance that you could pull one of these things in a secret layer drop. In this case, it seems to be have shipped almost exclusively with the Praetor drop from a few months back, um, either foil or non-foil. I haven't seen any reports yet out of the four or five copies that have been discovered thus far uh, of any of those 
uh, coming out of anything but the Praetor drop. Have we seen more than one? I'm only aware of the one that uh, Blywise opened. Yeah, there's four or five that have been circulating on social media. More have shown um, up. Star City Games was the, the first to, to find one in their own packages, and they promptly flipped it on Facebook via the uh, major misprints group for 5K. 5,000, huh? 5,000. So now you got a you got 100 copies. Now, will future copies all go for 5,000? No. There's probably some kind of premium associated with the first one that was found. There's probably going to be some kind of premium associated with specific numbers. I would imagine 1 out of 100, 100 out of 100, 42, 69. There's a few different things. And, and overseas, you know, in other cultures and in Asian cultures, there may be a different set of numbers that are coveted um, that flow into the hands of collectors. But this is going to be very interesting to see how this plays out because presumably at bare minimum this will increase secret layer interest further because now you're not only getting you know a solid secret layer drop most of the time not most a lot of the time uh, especially if you you know you're part of pro trader or some other group where you're kind of sussing out up front which ones are likely to do well you're also getting whatever bonuses come and some of the other hot stuff lately that wasn't one of a hundred but was still pretty sweet is the foil blueprints of things like ornithopter and lightning greaves and panharmonicon and stuff that have been floating around from recent drops that we expect will continue throughout the year you're also getting this you know bonus uh, associated with these one of a hundred cards and in this case it was a Viscera seer uh, in a mystery booster frame, so with the little white planeswalker symbol, reversed. So it's pretty lazy design. They just took the Photoshop file and they fl- they inverted it, basically. <laughs> um, and apparently that's what they're running with. Which in some ways makes sense to me from a project management perspective, because if I was managing this, they would probably say, listen, we're only printing 100 of these. They're designed to increase secret layer sales, but we don't know how successful that's going to be. So at least for this, this one, you're not going to get... Uh, a huge budget behind it. Keep in mind, they're only going to print. They're, they're they're literally printing one sheet. <laughs> no, no, a sheet no. is 121 cards, so they're printing one sheet and giving or throwing away some extras. After the uh, product arrangement of the black and white Crimson Vow double feature, uh, no one is surprised that this is literally just a normal card that's had uh, the reverse button pushed on Photoshop. Sure. Sure. Did, were the other cards that were spoiled? I, I'm sorry, I haven't kept up with it. Uh, also Viserys here? Yeah, yeah, it's all Viserys here. All Viserys here. Yeah, so some other people were telling me on Twitter when we, like, when we first clocked this, I put up a thing saying, like, what is this going to go for? And I, I had... Gave people, like, four tiers. I think it was zero to 250, 500 to 1,000, 1,000 to 2,000, 2,000 plus or something. And people got it completely wrong. I think only, like, 27% of respondents were even close to what it had sold for, which was five thousand dollars. And then that's, and then the people that were wrong. a lot of money. And then the people <laughs> that were wrong were chiming in with, This is a ridiculous, audacious, this is this is a ripoff. There's no way it's worth that much. People just don't get it. There's a hundred copies, people. That means that half of them will never emerge. They're just gonna get lost. People are gonna open them, not notice them. There's gonna be people that get the drop and forget there's a card on the bottom. There's going to get people that just slide into a binder and forget all about it. And then you're going to have probably 30 or 40 copies that are uncovered total on the entire planet. Keep in mind that very few of those are going to be uh, discovered outside of North America because secret layers are so expensive to ship overseas that the vast majority of them live in North America. And anybody who wants them overseas 
and you, you know this time it was Viserysir, who is people were like, why that card? It's like it's actually a massive EDH staple, and it's the season of vampires, and Markov is a top five commander. So all of that makes sense to me. But in the future, they'll do it with an even sexier card, and things will be extra bananas. Um, so, you know, people are definitely underestimating what it means to only have 100 copies of something, because the few cases where that has been true in the past in Magic has been because, you know, Garfield released cards at his wedding or something. You know, very weird things that were never available to the public. We've, we've had a few other cases of that being true, but they're not obvious so you had like uh you know russian foil whatever thought seizes from the time spiral remaster time spiral stuff like that where like there probably is only roughly this many copies in existence but it's that type of thing that's tracked and people are aware of and a lot of them are foreign um yeah this is the first time they've been in english basically and, and advertised uh I, I don't know if I I didn't partake in your poll. I don't know if I would have pegged them for five thousand off the bat, but I'm not. I, I wouldn't have discounted that either. Um, one in hundred is is rare, and it's it's very rare in a way that you can see. But I I, I don't see them keeping that price tag though. I. I, I definitely don't think it's like 5,000 plus for the others that get uncovered. I think it's somewhere between 1,000 and 5,000 would be my guess. But as time goes on, the, the, the small niche at the very top of the hobby that has unlimited deep pockets and intersects with completionism in some way is going to look to just get one of each of these and prefer some of them may prefer the same number or the same sequence of numbers. Some crazy millionaire might get it into their heads to just get all of them and hoard them. Hmm. Um, because they're much more rare than an alpha black lotus, keep in mind. Can you imagine somebody out there going, I want to get number one of every one of these? Exactly. I mean, and, that's, like, and trying to chase those all down. And, and, you, and it only takes 100 people that are on that wavelength and have the means to do it for it to push prices over time. And frankly, I'm surprised that it took us 30 years in this hobby to get to this point. Like numbered cards is something they should have dumped, jumped into ages ago. And certainly should have had ready to go at the start of booster fun. But well, Wizards was been very slow to the game of these ultra premium products for quite some time. No, I mean that's not took so, a long time to get there. And you know we, we've been able to see it, like right when they started all this, it was like oh here's X, Y, and Z they could do, and they've done X or Y or Z each year, but not so, everything. So so here's a funny dynamic as a final point to all this. If as long as there are copies yet to be revealed, and I think SCG is trying to keep a list of which, of which numbers have been found, um, there's always the possibility that a sealed unit could be the one that has it. And so sealed units are now booster packs, whereas secret layers up to this point were... You could argue that the, the potential to get a foil stained glass Liliana versus an Arlen or something... I mean, uh, yeah, Arlen from War... Um, certainly added a bit of that dynamic, but now it's, you know, to the nth degree. Now there's a possibility that you're probably getting a 5 or $10 card on the bottom there. Maybe you're getting a little luckier and it's a 50 or $60 blueprint, or maybe you're getting super lucky and it's a multi-thousand dollar card. So what that does is way more people are going to open the sealed units because they're hoping to find it. And people love that kind of thing in this hobby. And what that's going to do is there's going to be way less sealed units in the end which so far, so long as we don't have all 100 uncovered, 
those sealed units are going to be much more and more valuable than they would have been otherwise. And already we're seeing the Praetor units go for 90 to $100, something like that, on TCG. So it's like an instant double up minus fees. That's that's kind of weird to me because it's so easy to imagine these never being, never knowing all of them that are out there. Like never them never being dis- announced, essentially. Yeah, foil, foil Praetor units, lowest price on TCG right now is 90 bucks. Wow. And that's... That's that's that must have shipped right because that's where they're pulling these autos. So these are in people's hands. This must be the first wave, right? They've been landing over the last couple of weeks. Yeah. Okay. I think I have a package waiting for me yeah, to pick up. I bet that's what those are. You might have one. I might. I'm not going to find out. And so, so the final part of this this puzzle is that this is also going to presumably drive additional secret layer sales. And there was actually some data flo- floating around on Reddit, um, probably from the usual suspects that have that I guess used order numbers to measure how many units approximately sold for the that round of secret layers. And it looked like the Praetor drop was four times more popular or more than most of the others. You and I have talked often about secret layer drops being somewhere around 20,000 units. And it turns out it looks like we're right. It looks like they're, most of the, the drops in that super drop were 15 to 20,000 units or so. And the Praetors was 80,000 plus, 90,000 plus or something like that. Whew. So... It does, it's not crazy that they put them in the Praetors because a lot of them sold. So if you had something, let's say that it was all in the Praetors and there were 90,000 sold, then you're talking about like a 1 in 900 chance to pull one. Which is actually not that bad, all things considered. I would have to guess that your odds of winning $5,000 uh, on a lottery ticket are worth, oh, worse yeah. than that. Yeah, 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 yeah. For sure. <laughs> I mean, it's like two grand is not that much money to win off a scratch off, uh, but one in nine hundred is really not that rare. So if you buy five or ten units of this, then you're talking. If say you buy ten units, you're looking at a one in ninety chance, which is very reasonable. Like it's only adding a couple bucks to your EV long term, but if it lets you exit the pre- you know, for the people that aren't gamblers, the people that are just into the quick flip, the most efficient entry and exit of their money, so they can turn turn it back into the next secret layer and keep rolling. That Praetor's exit is right there waiting for you at 90, and there's going to be people that'll bite it off. In fact, I'm looking at latest sales just today. There were uh, lots. There was 10 units sold above $85. Yeah, I mean, there's definitely an argument to be made for just scooping the secret layer product up and either either going hog wild and cracking or just sitting on it knowing that you can say hey these are you know i'm, I'm gonna make my money back on the praters themselves um you know right now i can almost break even in the future i can probably make a profit and also i could possibly really get paid if i land on one of these it also doesn't seem like wizards is interested in promoting this directly like they're kind of letting it be under the radar because they haven't said anything about it in public in terms of yeah we did this it's definitely in the praetors drop etc and mm-hmm. in the next one it's going to be in this one so you have to ask yourself in the drop that just closed 48 hours ago was it in the stranger things like were you supposed to it was mostly seemed like they were focused on it being a stranger things drop so were you supposed to buy extra of the stranger things to try to get a shot at the lottery ticket if they if there's an added element to this where there's a secret layer each time that contains numbered cards but you don't know which of the secret layer products it is that makes this math uh which is already 
you know, occasionally a little tr- 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 difficult and trying, uh, even more confusing, right? Like, I don't, I don't really want to play that game if I'm being perfectly honest. Like, well, this secret layer product is good, and this one is not as good, but this one seems more likely to have the hidden cards, which will increase the value some amount, depending on which one they put in and if they change any this time. But if I'm wrong, then it's not, and... Ugh. <laughs> Right. But bottom line, do you, get, do you get that at all? Is that kind of your do you feel that way about that? I, I tend to not in like let those kinds of emotions settle on on my brow, as it were. But I think it's interesting that there is kind of two uh, countervailing forces here. There is the this drives hype for secret layers. And so sealed secret layers may be worth more money. Um and the counter pressure to that is, yeah, but if it drives, you, what, you, what, if you're buying secret layers, what you actually want so far, and we've seen this again and again with some of the less exciting secret layers overperforming, you know, the cats one and whatever, um, is that you actually don't want the competition. You don't want other people buying the same secret layer as you. So if, if this like consistently pushes secret layer sales up over 100,000 units, Wizards is making bank. So if you're holding Hasbro stock, <laughs> you're in pretty good shape. Because I, I figured out that based on the numbers that were posted, the secret layer projects were something are probably like 20 million per drop mm. in revenue. And that's with like maximum margin, right? Because there's no middleman whatsoever. There's no distributor, no logistics. There's no retailer level, nothing. It's just Wizards, the printing shop, and then straight to... The people that buy, so twenty million per drop, and they're doing like eight drops a year or whatever. That's a, adding a hundred and sixty million to the bottom line in a brand that used to only be a hundred and sixty million. That's such a disgusting number, like to just essentially double your profits with virtually no work. Whoever came up with that is bonus central. Yeah, I mean, they're just going to get another job, right? Like Hasbro's not going to be able to pay that person enough because they're going to put on their resume that they doubled the brand's revenue in the course of <laughs> a year. Yeah. And, you know, any other collectible type companies and be like, yeah, just come make that for us. I don't think they doubled the revenue, but I think you're pretty close if you say they doubled the profit because the margins are so much higher on this on this part of the product what, mix. Whatever the technical term there is. Yeah, I mean, re- revenue is the total money they sell. But when they're selling like a booster box for a hundred bucks, they're only getting like forty-five or fifty or whatever for it after all their marketing expenses and whatever. But on a secret layer, if they sell it to you for forty-nine ninety-nine, it's just minus whatever they paid the artists on that project, which is going to be single-digit thousands usually. Um, the production costs, which are sizable, but not in comparison to the scale of the revenue, and you know, like the the printing process for twenty thousand units of secret layer is. And the logistics behind it is under a couple million dollars. Yeah, I feel I feel confident. Oh, it, it, it's got to be way less than that. It's it's overall it's below fifteen percent of revenue would be my guess, and I would think that the number is closer to thirty five or forty percent of revenue in the case of most of their products. So it's very impressive. Now, people do need to think about: is is this going to increase secret layer sales by fifteen percent, or is it going to double them? Because I don't. I think there was discussion in the ProTrader Discord about, well, maybe what we're supposed to be doing for the next round of Secret Layers then isn't buying the units. It's buying singles way out from release. Because the more units that get bought and then dumped because they 
uh, or singles that get bought and then dumped because they didn't have a one out of a hundred in them, the cheaper the singles are going to be, uh, and the longer they're going to stay that way. So that that is all worth thinking about as we move forward. Yeah, there's I, I don't know what the right option here is going to be. Uh, it's tough to call. I don't I don't see it adding that much to be honest i like in terms of like the number of sales like i don't think that these secret cards are going to be uh doubling sales on this product that seems unlikely partially because if they sold eighty thousand praters right now let's rewind and say okay everyone knows they have a chance all right let me phrase that the the well, let's do it this way. We're, the next secret layer that comes out, we will know that these likely are out there. Do you really think that whatever the 80,000 secret layer product is that time, that all 80,000 of those people know, or all the people who bought those 80,000 units even know about this? Like, well, the I... percentage of people who know about this buying secret layers is actually probably less than that. Probably, I would guess, half, maybe. Yeah, you're bringing up a good point because you have to try to figure out how many onesie twosie buyers are there versus SCGs buying dozens or hundreds of units or whatever, uh, and how many how many vendors go you know how many pro traders buy a few thousand dollars per drop, a, a lot. <laughs> so I mean we're a sizable chunk of the market, and there's other groups like us, and there's Facebook groups and Reddit and whatever, uh, and then there's all the vendors, yeah, you know, the LGSs and whatever that at some point are going to tune into this more succinctly because I think that up front they rejected the secret layer premise because they felt like they were paying retail for something they would normally have gotten at wholesale. But as you keep seeing drop after drop after drop, price mature over the course of six months to two years into a very reasonable product, you're going to see more and more vendors willing to hang on to it, especially the ones that are mostly online only and don't don't have as much overhead and are willing to hold product for longer. Yeah, it's um, it's a good question, and I, I mean, if you go look at the sales numbers on TCG players for the singles, it feels like it's probably split a little less. Like it might be sixty forty in terms of like, like you you have a major store like games not Games Workshop. Um, what's the big one? Gaming Co. Gaming Co. will have like whatever 40 or 50 copies of something, and everyone else's ones or twos. But there's a good number of people selling the singles, and then you have like a couple other big stores. So I get the I get the sensation without having looked at these numbers that it's probably like 50-50 or 60-40. But that's the copies being sold online too. So you figure the major vendors are buying good chunks of these. But if the number of pro- of people selling product on CCG player and other associated platforms is roughly equivalent to the number of copies sold by the big vendors, but then also everyone else who bought copies, they just kept them for themselves and didn't put them up. Well, to your point, there are 42 foil Praetor sets listed on TCG. People think that TCG is the end all, that it, it encompasses the entire market, but the reality is which, it's a tiny drop not, in the bucket. Not. Yeah, it's a tiny drop yeah. in the bucket. This is 42 out of tens of thousands of listings. I mean, tens of thousands of sales. 
So most of them never enter the market. I mean, this is the same thing we've been saying about Magic Cards from the beginning on this cast, which is that a large portion of why prices are what they are is because people put their cards on the shelves and closets and boxes and never sell them. If they sold them, prices would come down because the, the market is a single digit fraction of single digit percentage of the total inventory that exists in the world. Mm-hmm. It's, it's interesting. I, uh, it'll be curious to see how this plays out and if the price tags on those stay as high as they do. But yeah, I, I mean, as we mentioned before, I don't think they're going to be 5,000, but I don't think they're going to be 500 either. Wow. And this is without even getting into whether that, uh, MSHF drop or whatever out of, uh, the East coast that has their own drop app where they just released horse flavored chips this week or something is, is going to be an exclusive to their app. Or whether it's going to be on the secret layer site. It seemed, based on a link that they released a little early this week, that it was going to be on the secret layer site because their their one pager site was redirecting to the secret layer site. Um, but it, it then bring brings to mind the question: like, how exclusive is the drop? Is it are they going to limit it to a thousand units, five thousand units, ten thousand units? Are they going to put it at a very high price point? Is that going to have a one out of a hundred? from a very a much tighter inventory pool because like one out of a if they print 100 cards and put them into that drop and there's only 10,000 units your odds get a lot better yeah huh yeah that's true i uh but you know if these are a thousand dollars a piece roughly each of these numbered cards the you know the way that evens out across the value of the secret layers is actually not even that much right if we're talking what do we say one one in 900 right yeah. Was what we ballparked? Yeah. One at 900, at 900, at 900 copies, they added a dollar of EV. Yep. Is it, like, if, if the card is $900. So, and so even if they're two, even if they're, even if they are five grand, they're adding like four or five dollars EV to the secret layer. Yeah, and they add like five secret, and a half bucks. If it's a one in a 900 chance and they're worth five grand, then it adds five bucks EV, which is very respectable, right. really. Well, it's not terrible, but the, if the secret layers are already thirty, forty, fifty dollars, like you're getting, you're getting some added value there. But it's not like we're talking about you're buying thirty dollars secret layers hoping to get a thirty thousand dollar bonus. You're, it, you're, it's just like for the ratio that you're talking about, it doesn't seem like it should be a major factor. If you're, if you're, and if you're the type of person who's sitting down and buying a couple either for yourself and maybe you're going to resell a couple, it's not a big enough number for you to seriously change your buying habits. My guess is that it probably boosts sales for 15 to 20% for as long as the hype train runs on $1,000 plus copies. If you see copies fall down under $1,000, then it gets significantly less exciting. Um, And and obviously the biggest vendors, like you said, are going to do the EV math and... And they're going to, they may, they may order additional. Like I can see Star City saying, you know what? There's going to be some hype around this for the next six months at least. So for the next few drops, we're, we're, we're ordering more. And the, and then as long as the sales follow through, as long as they're able to unload that inventory at numbers that they're satisfied with, they will continue with that process. Maybe ratchet it up again. If they get stuck holding, they're going to go back the other way. Yeah. I guess let me, let me put it this way. If you're. The with each secret layer, there is an unknown margin f- 
for which you are not exactly sure how popular this is going to be, both in terms of how many people are going to buy the secret layer initially and also what the basically what the price will end up down the road. So for like the Praetors, we're like, well, this is obviously going to be really popular, but it's going to sell a ton of copies, which will suppress the price. So we still think it's a good choice, but it's definitely going to flood the market compared to like other secret layers. So there's so much of a margin of error that we're trying to make sense of, like with all the knowledge and education and experience that we have, we're still like, we're good, but we're not perfect by any stretch of the imagination. There's such a margin of unknown there that the four or five bucks these ads seems like way less than that. Essentially, that just gets rolled up in the unknown factor of, well, was I, I'm not clear how good this one is going to have, end up having been. Now, here's the counter to that. Lottery systems worldwide have done very well, despite having zero logic to support the process. Well. <laughs> and that's true in video games with loot boxes. It's been true with lottery systems the world over, billions and billions and billions being siphoned off from the poor, the stupid, or the uninformed. And that is something they can easily key into here. And that's why I think it, like the sports card industry has already done this extremely effectively. Like keep in mind, people are paying hundreds and hundreds, sometimes thousands of dollars for these high-end premium sports card booster boxes. They're lying, even for the mid-tier stuff, they're like fighting each other in Walmarts to get a hold of them to the point where during COVID they had like the big box stores had to stop carrying that stuff in certain locations to fend off the kind of drama it was creating in the store. And for Wizards to even bite off just a small chunk of that, I, I suspect is going to boost sales. I'm guessing 15 to 20%. We'll see. I mean, it, it, if people can't unit count just by checking on order numbers and so forth, then I'm sure we'll have additional information posted to Reddit next time and we'll have a sense of it. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, All right, so let's move on. One, one other little piece of news before we jump into the metagame. Uh, Kojima Soren is the chase card at Crimson Vow. And that story is developing in a way that is very reminiscent to me of the Amano Liliana in War of the Spark. Um we had figured out with Cliff early on uh, that this was probably one of the rarer pulls out of collect uh, booster fun era products in the sense that because there are multiple versions of Soren that could be pulled, there's the borderless foil, there's the uh, uh, Kojima Soren, which is the Fang uh, border, there's the pack foil, and there's one more I feel like I'm forgetting. Uh, don't ask me black, man black and white showcase perhaps I, I can't remember off the top of my head but basically because there's that many versions when they're say you're opening a collector booster box or a set booster box in a slot where you could find a foil mythic alt art Soren, the odds of it being any one of them is a fraction of the drop rate for say a card that only has one premium version so if you have a Mythic that only has FEA as the premium version, Soren is, I can't remember if it's three or four times more rare. So that's very, very rare. And in fact, all of the early information we have from uh, cracking operations in our own Discord through ProTrader and also talking to some of our partners overseas in terms of how many boxes they opened and how many of these they found, very, very few. This is not an easy card to pull. It's it's oh. equivalent to or harder than a foil extended art 
uh, Jeweled Lotus was in Commander oh. Legends. All right, can you state state which card we're talking about again? Kojima Soren. Just Kojima Soren. Well, it's it's true of all the versions, but the only one that matters is Kojima Soren because it's Kojima artwork, who was the as we said last week the Castlevania artist. Um, okay. And so, so, so those versions have been pre-ordering in North America in and around one thirty to one eighty ish. And every time they go up somewhere in North in Canada or the U.S., they've been getting snapped off by speculators, many of them pro traders and other tuned in folk that are rolling dice to see if this is going to be, you know, a Vorinclex from Kaldheim where it peaks early over 250 and then falls back down and kind of sits there for a while. Or is it going to be a mono where it rocket ships out of the gate and never stops? The... As that process was beginning, I think I, I think it was two weeks ago that I bought a copy from Star City Games. I think it was like the first listings put up at 135 with my discount there, and then I bought other units in Europe around 55 euros, which is almost certainly a steal. And then I bought some more in Canada uh, at around 150, 155 this week, because early pricing in Japan is over $2,000 and it's over $2,000 for both the Japanese and the English versions, but they are differentiating between set and CB versions on on the premise that the set versions are the superior ones, just like they were with the mystical archives. And that's because the set versions are made in Japan and the CBs are all, no matter what the language made in Texas and the, Factory in Texas has a reputation now of making lower quality product. And so it looks like uh, Harry Yuya pricing on that, which hasn't been posted yet, but it should be in the next 48 hours, is probably going to be something like four, three, I would guess three to 500 on the collector booster box uh, foil sorens. And somewhere, I'm guessing somewhere north of 1500 to 2500 on the best version of the card. (laughs) <laughs> that's quite a price tag so uh, of course that set off uh you know sent me off in the direction of organizing a group buy for set booster boxes from japan and it turns out that unlike strixhaven japanese uh boxes that had international distribution crimson bow does not w- wizards doesn't doesn't you know didn't consider it to be something special because keep in mind with strixhaven boxes if you had an English box, there was no Japanese alt art in it. Like with War of the Spark, only Japanese boxes had the Japanese alt arts, and Strixhaven, only the Japanese boxes had uh, the Japanese alt art mystical archives, which were on a 50-50 pull rate per pack. So Wizards printed a lot of those because they knew people would be into them and they intended them for international distribution, and indeed there's still units of that product sitting around. And so of course some of the pro traders feel burned by the, by the, by the fact that it's taking, it's going to take a while for the mystical archive stuff to mature. Thing is the vow stuff is not, is not international distribution. Like we talk to our people in various countries that supply us and they don't have access to it through their distribution pipeline at all. So I would imagine there'll be a trickle through to North America and Europe but most of it seems squarely centered in Japan, one run and done, which means those set boxes, you know, currently you have Japanese war boxes worth about 250 on eBay. I would imagine that Japanese vow boxes, if Soren stays, 
you know multi a multi thousand dollar card, then those set boxes should end up being worth you know two hundred and fifty to five hundred within five years for sure. So if I have a friend that lives in Japan, I'm supposed to call him and tell him to just stock up uh, set boosters. Is that what you're telling me? I mean, if they can even get them, the price in our group buy is equivalent to or lower than anything I've seen in Japan, and very few of the pro traders jumped on it. Did um, does anyone over the, has have you spoken to any of the guys who live over there and asked them what the deal on the ground is? Well, I we know what the deal on the ground is because we have multiple partners in Japan now. Well, I'm just wondering for the people who like can wander down Nakibara and try and see what happens if they try and buy one, basically. Keep in mind that distributor pricing on Magic product in Japan rose during the pandemic. So very, very difficult to get pricing that... I think our, our price was a 123 a box or something like that. You can get see English set boxes get down anywhere from 5 to $20 cheaper, depending on which set you're talking about. But in this particular case, given the opportunity to pull something that could be worth three times more than a fea jeweled lotus i i suspect that they're going to keep a lot of that close to their chest over there yeah hmm i yeah i have a i have a friend that's over there but getting a hold of those is uh it's kind of annoying I, I, or I should say, even if getting this, getting a hold of them is difficult. The other added challenge, if you're buying in Japan, is there's not a lot of space over there. Yep. Like he, you know, he's in. Uh, he does pretty well, but he's still in a small apartment. He's got a wife and two kids, and it's not not spacious. And that, you know, I, I have him hold singles for me, and that's not too big of a deal. But uh, sealed product is real annoying. I, I haven't done any of that with him, and I would feel bad asking him to hold on to it, especially if it's going to be for some extended period of time. Well, and that's why the our group by including global shipping is such a good deal, right? Yeah, yeah. Being able to get a hold of it is a big deal because if you're asking your friend to hold that for you, you're, uh, <laughs> you're not making things easy on him. That's for sure. Well, and Japanese vendors, even now that they're shipping overseas, don't are, don't will will not ship you sealed product directly. So you you almost always have to have a contact on the ground that takes possession first. Yeah. The, so anyway, Kojima Sorens, keep your eye on those folks because it could be a nothing that falls flat and is dirt cheap. But I suspect, given the rarity drop and how what the early pricing looks like in Japan, that we're probably headed in the, the other direction. Now, I want to be clear here, just again for our listeners, because we, you know, they ask us to repeat card names frequently, and I want to specify because this is a can be a confusing one. We're talking about the foil Kojima art Sora and the Mirthless. Yes, we are. Okay, okay. Because and, and if I look on TCG Player, right, and specifically the Japanese it, it, version ju- is presumed to be the most valuable. Okay, because if I look on TCG Player right now, the Soren Kojima Soren is like forty bucks, but for the non foils, yeah, yeah. Well, that well, that's yeah. just it. That's similar to what like Amanos were. We bought Amanos a year after release in Europe for fifty five bucks a piece when they did a mass cracking on a, a later wave of that product, and I've sold those routinely over a hundred within a year of that that instance. But early on. You know, a mono foils were going in the mid hundreds. I think I already mentioned earlier that I, I bought one at four fifty, flipped it for six fifty. Thought I was doing really well. Um, and somebody in the Discord was talking to me today, where you're trying to establish whether a mono got down to the fifty sixty dollar range early, or whether it was always eighty to hundred, and then later fell down under the weight of inventory. But suffice to say. $40 Sorens could end up be, being worth money, being 
an even better spec. The depending on how things go, the cracking operations that were commenting in the Discord about how many Sorens they pulled. Period. One of them said we we opened like a hundred boxes and pulled one non-foil Soren and zero foils of that version. Whew. Keep keep in mind that. The set one of the reasons the set booster box versions can be worth so much more is that the drop rates are so much lower. And if you think if you start to do some math about how many thousands of copies of the Soren there are in the world, the rough math that I did for Cliff resulted in something. Uh, I think it was around a thousand copies I predicted worldwide. Let me just pull that up uh, as we finish off here, <laughs> Mister Worldwide. Mister Worldwide. Yeah. So I said something like. Cliff established that it was one in a 444 packs of collector boosters. And you multiply that about by about 0.2 or something if if you believe that Japan Japanese product is 20% of magic revenue. You can fine-tune any of these numbers as you like to get a different number in the end, but it's not going to be very different. So let's say that Vow is an $80 million release across all products. That seems pretty reasonable, plus or minus, I don't know, 30 or 40 million, but I feel pretty confident about the 80 million. Uh, English boxes would be 60% of the release, so that's 48 million worldwide. Let's say it's CBs are 20% of that revenue, so 10 million worth of collector booster boxes sold. And then let's say wholesale cost on the CBs is 160 US or something. If you, if you have 60,000 units, you basically you're looking at 1600 copies printed and japanese copies might be under 500 and then the number of those that are set sourced would be a tiny fraction because Hmm. because the drop rates are so much higher in general in collector booster boxes since they're premium boxes that have you know dedicated slots for the premium foils right Um, as opposed to the set boxes where you could you could go you could go through a case and not pull out one of the fancy cards you're looking for from the set. Yeah. Yeah. So That's brutal. And keep in mind, I, I originally calculated that there was probably something like... Something like 2,000, maybe 3,000 of monos total. And that number only got that high because they eventually released uh, international distribution for Japanese war boxes. And they were easily available for the better part of a year. At only twenty or thirty percent above the English boxes. Yeah, I know we have uh, we got some of those. But this, because there's no international distribution, I expect will dry up much much faster. Unless Wizards changes their mind, they could in six months say, "Oh wow, like the the Soren is such a hot topic. We'll do the same thing as we did with War, and we'll push it through international distribution." If that happens, then that could change change the math. But even still, in the end, I don't think there was more than single digit thousand of monos, and there's not going to be more than single digit thousand sorens. So, yeah, I mean, I my my gut react instinct is that it will be reasonably valuable, but less so than the monos by a pretty wide margin because it's just it's rare, but it's less interesting. Um, a mono carries quite a bit of weight, apparently. I mean, I knew I knew people would care, but like people really care. I don't know how much people care about this. It seems like it's riding much more on the rarity component than the appealing. I, I don't think like that's true appealing in Japan. is a card component. I don't think that's true in Japan. I think it's supported, especially on the set version level, by the rarity. And that they can use that to justify the price at retail in Japan in terms of saying, not only is this the highest quality version, but there's 10 times less of them around. Um, but 
the other versions of Soren are not worth anything in Japan. They're going to be tens of dollars. So the Ko- Kojima factor is huge here. Like it's, I, I think that it's fair to say that if it's not on a mono's level, it's very close. Well, I guess time, time will tell partly. Time will sort of tell. <laughs> okay. Well, I mean, it's early goings, but and I'm sure we'll be reporting on this later. Let's yeah. dive right in here on the Metagame Recon Review, try to plow through a very interesting week in the uh, Magic Online modern community. Showcase challenge on the Saturday this week and a modern challenge on the Sunday. I think the showcase challenge was nine rounds or something. Charbelcher won both of these tournaments. Yeah, this is pretty funny. And keep and keep in mind that we this isn't the first time we've seen Charbelcher lately. Like Charbelcher showed up as second in the challenge on the thirty first, and then went quiet for a week and now won both challenges. So <laughs> it's interesting. We were having a conversation in the Discord today about to what extent do you go in on cards that are that matter for decks like this for like living end or uh, creativity combo, like indomitable creativity or glimpse uh, of tomorrow or char belcher, even when they do well, are they, do they appeal to a great, great enough number of players that they're ever going to be a, a major factor on the finance side? Uh, that's a tough that's a tough one. I don't know. What is it? What's your read? Well, like I mentioned a couple weeks ago that foil char belchers were sitting around on uh, TCG player at like 30 bucks. And now they're all gone. So there was def- <laughs> definitely a buy there. But I think it's a lot easier in that case because um, the there was very few of them to begin with. Like when you have... <laughs> an old foil from Mirrodin era and you have seven copies lying around on TCG player, a lot easier for those to dry up. Um, it's also worth noting that there's only two versions of Char Belcher because they only ever printed it in, well, Mirrodin. And then the other one was what? Uh, EMA. UMA? EMA. Oh, external masters. Eternal, yeah. eternal masters. External, external masters. External masters. <laughs> These cards are external, unlike all other magic cards, which are internal. <laughs> it was uh, dual decks, merfolks, and goblins, and mystery boosters, but in mystery booster, it was a non-foil, I'm guessing. Yeah, that's true. So, so were you were you asking about the the foil char belchers, right? As in terms of whether I think they're popular enough? No, I was. It's more like other cards in the deck. Like, does looking at these, you know, Charbelcher winning a weekend, which is basically clearly what happened here, make you want to run out and grab ZNR DFC Mythic Lands in greater quantity? Because keep in mind, we saw, we people went in deep on ZNR DFC Mythic Lands this time last year, because they mm-hmm. had they had shown up in, not Charbelcher, it was something else. Uh, uh, it was, it was spells. A, yeah, it was something with... Uh, God, I can't remember his name. The black, like, common creature that would flip and flip your whole graveyard. Undercity Informer, maybe? Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, Oops All Spells, pretty sure, was the, the name of the deck. Yeah. And and then they, those have then, you know, pressure let off those because that deck disappeared in the meta. And now a year later, those all those lands are looking good again. Not just because of this, but just because time has gone, has drained them out as foil mythics. Um, and they see plenty of EDH play as well. But, you know, if Charbelcher keeps doing well... People need 10 of those flip mythic lands to make the deck. 
they, they run four Turn Timber Symbiosis, they run Shatter Skull Smashing, and I think they run the blue one, Seagate's Restoration. Probably. So. Uh, yeah, I I mean, the ZNR lands are appealing because it seems like there's always going to be somewhere for them to do work in modern uh, since that's just what the, the cards are going to do is there's going to be a combo deck where those are useful. Char Belchers, I feel much less, I'm much less interested in those um, just because they have exactly one home and some people are going to play with them, but most people aren't. And even the people who play with them might not care that much because it's a weekend deck, not a, not a big time deck. Like plenty of people who are going to play that are going to play it because they expect it to be good this weekend, not because it's their deck. There are some people for whom that is true, but it's a pretty small number. Funny thing is, the second place deck in the challenge was also a bit of a uh, out of left field. Merfolk back on the agenda, winning with yeah. four Civilin and four Subtlety, both cards that have been largely ignored. Yeah, Merfolk is not something you see too often. Um, since, just flipping through the list here. Since the early goings, uh, you know, within the first month of MH2, people were like, oh, yeah, like there's enough here for Merfolk that this is going to be a deck again. And it did top eight a few times and then slid off the radar. And if you'd asked me two weeks ago where it was at, I would say, like, it's just being outcompeted. There's too many good decks in this format. And but, setting setting an aggro clock just isn't enough. This has got Subtlety, Svelian, and Tide Shaper. Those are all Modern Horizons 2 cards. Yep. Yep, yep. Interesting. Interesting. That's there. Uh, what do we got else? We've got some blue white control and four color control, Amulet Titan, and John Saga. Is when you say John Saga, you're talking about Urza Saga, right? Yeah. 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 So then over in the challenge on the 14th, again, Charbilcher winning, and then four color elementals in second. Then a glimpse combo. So this is Glimpse of Tomorrow, yet another MH2 card. <laughs> and this deck is wild. Like, we've seen versions of this along the way, but the, the number of cards here that I'm sure have been specs at one point or another that are all kind of, like, jammed together in this thing is just way too funny. So you've got four Chancellor of the Forge. You've got four Fury, uh, one of my picks recently. Four Goblin Dark Dweller. I totally called those promos, like, two or three years ago and they never went anywhere um would you say goblin dark dwellers you said yeah oh man i bought so many of these back in the day they looked so good it was just cascade again yeah 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 or not the cascade but it, it was good it looked like i'm just my, i remember my exact argument it was that snapcaster plus playing the flashback cost is the same as as casting a goblin dark dweller it's just not at flash speed yeah it, it's a powerful card i don't know why it didn't quite get there Four Omnath, three Season Pyromancer, four Shardless Agent, and four Wave Sister, Sifter, with another MH2, uncommon. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, I remember Wave Sifter in this deck. It's a, this is fun. So what they do is they try to cascade into the Glimpse of Tomorrow, which um, flips up. First of all, they try and get extra permanence into play. So that's what the Fury is for. And the, um, and the Wave so, Sifter and the Season Pyromancer. Yep, and all those can help get you there. And then they try and cascade into the Glimpse of Tomorrow, which is uh, intended to turn all those into other permanents. And ideally, you also hit a Goblin Dark Dwellers, which then just casts that Glimpse again. And hopefully you have more permanents now than you did before because there's only seven non-land yep. permanents in the deck. Um, or se seven 
non-permanent cards in the deck. So it's it's a fun little strategy here, and you just end up with a pile of like chancellors and furies and dark dwellers and seasoned pyromancers, and you just try to beat them down on like turn three. Four hammer time. Fourth was hammer time. Fifth blue red merc tide. Charbelcher again in six. So two first places and a six that are two challenges. Five color control, and then Yorion five color good stuff. Now. <laughs> The thing I put, one thing I want to flag here is there's four color control over in the first challenge. That's four Omnath, four Solitude, 13 Planeswalkers, and a pile of control cards. You got four color Elementals, which is another Omnath deck in the second place in the other challenge. And that one's more on the Elementals, like uh, uh, Mull Drifter, Risen Reef side of things. And then you got five color control, which is a modification of the four color control, adding black, I think, for Colligan's command, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, let me just double check that. It was the seventh place deck. Yeah, so it was... Yeah, they have... Yeah, and the main fatal pushes, Kai's Guile and Colligan's command they dipped into black for so this is a deck that mm. runs three archmage's charm three blue pips four counterspell four counterspell two blue pips fatal push kai's guile white black coligan's command black red and two mana morphos because you need something to fix all this and <laughs> three solitude two snap four snapcaster mage four omnath three teferi time raveler and four run and six your mana should be atrocious in this deck but it's working out just fine for them apparently uh, i'm having trouble casting my double blue and triple blue spells i should probably put a grawl card in to fix that yeah <laughs> uh yeah that's uh that's quite a deck all right mana bases in modern are just illegal now like, yeah. i don't think they're they should be banned by wizards just entirely well and then you've got the eighth place build that was Yorion five color good stuff. So this is the 80 card list with Yorion in the sideboard. And then they're running, they just stuffed Ragavan in here because Ragavan's just so good. Like it doesn't matter that you're running a mid range control deck. Ragavan's still good enough. Yeah. Yeah. He is, uh, it's a good card. Shows up in a lot of places. What are you going to do? Uh, so the, the point I'm making here is the, the, the five color good stuff approach has gotten to the point where there's five or six different versions of it and they're mm -hmm. performing every single week. So you can make the argument that these, there are just too many good cards at, at, and, and the man is too easy. And yeah. And that it's time. They probably need like a blood moon esque effect again to keep this in check. It seems like the, the problem is likely it's like having good cards isn't the problem. I'm guessing the mana is too good without, without really diving into it. You'd have to talk to somebody like Ari Lax or Sam Black or someone like that to kind of say, all right, listen, we have multiple decks that look different, but they're basically just giant piles of good stuff. And we have very, we have a lot fewer decks that seem to be a cohesive thought and strategy. It's just, you know, what, which specific good cards do you want to play in your pile? Um, that that sounds like a mana problem to me because your format can be full of good cards, but you shouldn't be able to play them all. The first thing I'd be looking at is whether triumphs were too too good to have basic land types on. Uh, yeah, I mean, 
this one only has god this this eighth place list has what one two has two triumphs in the deck Sure, but, but it's but, one of those things you wonder if it's well, but you, you only you only need to because you you're that many, right? Yeah, you you get one on the first turn, one on the second turn. This deck doesn't do anything on turns one or two, so well, well except for those four ragavans. Well, but the, the, the thing about ragavan, and one of the reasons it's probably in here is because under a blood moon, ragavan can fix your problem. Ragavan can still dash for for one and a red, or get played for one red, and then when he hits, you get a treasure token, and now you're on five colors again. Mm-hmm. Sort of. But yeah. Yeah, that's I don't know. I'm not gonna try and fix the format here. But it is wor- it is definitely notable that it seems like that you have these good stuff decks that just are all the same idea, even if they're not necessarily playing the same cards. Anyway, in summary, Char Belcher definitely on the rise and worth keeping an eye on. Merfolk a little less so, and the format still looks very bustling. There is lots of creativity going on in and amongst some very good established builds. Bussin. Move, moving over to top paper movers, we got Mystic Gate from uh, Shadowmore moving from 34 to 48 in non-foil. That's 40% gains on the back of blue, white, control, uh, and various four-color decks sometimes making use of it. Concealed Courtyard foils at a Kaladesh, 16 to 23. Hammer Times using that to splash black. Sometimes Dark Confidant, sometimes Thought Seize. Arcane Signets out of Secret Lair. Foils going from 24 to 36. This is from the Box of Rocks drop, November of 2020. There are just four listings left on TCG of that version of Arcane Signet. I seem to remember us saying something along the lines of... Because I think this was just after they gave us the foil extended art version from Commander Legends. And I'm pretty sure we said something like, it's just a regular fame foil, nobody will care. Hmm. Yeah. And and, the, yeah. and that signet is now worth pretty much the value of the whole drop. In less, in less than a year. Wait, what did you say that we said about Arcane Signet? That this version of it, because it had come out just... it was That drop happened basically the same month as Commander Legends, and they gave us the foil extended art version yeah. of the Arcane Signet. We, we presumed that people would prefer the, the FEA and that this might be left in the dust. We said that? Yeah, pretty sure. Have to go back to a, a year ago's podcast to double check, but that sounds accurate to me. Uh, well, I do know that the old border stuff has generally been less appealing, right? Like, we we know that that's true. Well, this, less, less, less appealing than we expected it to be. But this isn't, this isn't even old border. This is regular foil, just with unique art. The... Oh, that secret layer drop. The because I'm looking at the retro frame one. Nope. <laughs> not You're the talking new one. about not the new one. Box of rocks from November twenty. Oh, there's been multiple, so your confusion is excused. Yeah. What? Yep. That version is down to come four, on, four come on. Exactly. Exactly. So I'm getting I'm getting more and more <laughs> bullish on secret layers. Let's put it that way. <sighs> There, I mean, okay, hold on. Arcane Signet Secret Layer, we've got this as 25 to 36. This is the one that's kind of got like the chick sitting on the thing, right? In the field of flowers. In the purple background or something, yeah. Yeah. These are on TCG Play right now for $14. Not foils. Oh, wait, wait. Oh, you're right. 28, 30. What the hell? Why are people buying this? Exactly. 
Who's buying this card? It's, why? Like, I don't, are. I don't get it. But, it's, but they are. We gotta stop. We gotta stop trying to guess what people like. Was, okay, but was this? Was this a? Uh, a nobody bought box of rocks problem. Possibly, that's a possibly true, but it doesn't matter because if you, it starts to redirect you back to things that you don't think are good, right? I keep writing up these complicated analyses for the pro traders where I'm like, buy these secret layers and not these because these ones obviously have good EV. And if you look at something like the Praetor's analysis is on point, but with that strategy, looking at EV. I'm definitely going to miss some of the ones that underperform and get rare fast. Yeah. Yeah. I I don't know. This is... I, I don't know. I don't know, man. I don't know who's buying these cards. I don't understand it. I guess you just... You're supposed to buy the whole damn foil package every single time. Just buy all of them every single time. All right, so moving along. We, we generally we generally say, but it, like especially when it comes to pre-orders, don't pre-order because you're going to miss so much more than you're going to hit that you will come out behind every time. So unless you have extremely good knowledge, foresight into the set, basically don't pre-order during pre- pre-order season. Maybe secret layers are the exact opposite. Well, on- just like just just buy them all. Well, we definitely have pro traders that are just buying ten of the the super bundles every time now, and and are doing well on TCG. Um, yeah. All right. So moving on, you like this one too? Phyrexian Altar UMA foils. This is a big time EDH card, and it has been printed exactly twice. Mm-hmm. The original printing and UMA Invasion was the original, and those foils or Invasion foils are like four to five hundred dollars now. Yeah, uh, those are. The UMA foils are 130 pushing 200 I, I I guarantee you, you could get these for dirt cheap when UMA came out. Oh, uh, I don't know about that. I'm going to check right I now. I don't know if they were ever that cheap. Let's both, let's both rush off and look. Pro- provide your commentary, but the they, these were real cheap. Uh, mm, let's go. 30. I think they were in the 30s, which is obviously a lot less than 150. Market 200. Tuesday in October, early October 2019, so just about two two years ago, they bottomed out at $23. Yeah, are, I mean, I, I that's a ten times ten times minus fees gain if you can unload one at 200. I mean, it's obviously a ridiculous return. I don't know if I'd call it dirt cheap, right? Like it was that would would still have been one of the higher price cards in the. You know, yeah, but I don't care about base cost. I don't price. care about base cost. I care about returns. So if it's if it's twenty bucks to go to a hundred, even if it's just a hundred, like forget two hundred, that's still five times in two years. I'm on that all day. If I oh, care. I mean, it's fin- don't get me wrong. The return is phenomenal. I just mean it's not like these were four dollars and we were passing them up. It was like twenty five bucks meant if you put, bought a place that you were in for a hundred dollars, and that's if you were buying at the absolute floor. So I didn't even look at this card. I don't remember ever even considering buying this as a spec. I mean, I, I can't remember what I had for dinner yesterday. I'm a goldfish, so I'm not going to speak to what we talked about with this. But Phyrexian Altar has always been a big card um, in EDH. All right, so here's so, here, here's another secret layer success story for you. How about the Swamp from Crushing Brutality? This is the drop from just February of 2021 uh, with the hot looking skull 
and Bones scenario on it. We're down to two listings on TCG Player at $40 a piece, and then they are gone. You can still get them in Europe around 25 bucks or so all in. And I bought, snapped off some of the cheaper ones I could find there today. But yeah, these don't exist anymore, and they're less than a year old. So it went from, it, they got as low as $13 in May when the we were at peak supply, and it took less than a, six months to triple from there. Oh, this thing. I had to, looking these up is really annoying. Yep. But I see what you're saying. So, uh, so I, call, I, call, I told people to buy these, and then I forgot to buy them. This is one of the secret layers where I had it in my cart for a while and then forgot all about it and the deadline passed and I missed it completely. <laughs> well, yeah. Yep. You know, I actually just saw somebody tweet today like, oh, whoops, I missed a secret layer. I guess I, I guess I'm just not buying that set. And it's like, I wonder how many people look two or three days after the fact and go, whoops. Yep, lots. Like, yeah. It's, we, we frequently see people post uh screenshots from facebook where people are asking someone to do quote unquote do them a solid and and flip them a unit at cost right after the secret layer closes shop hmm. so lots of people forget including me uh lord of extinction masterpiece series invocation 50 to 90 uh probably it's been on a slow drain for a couple of years now and then old stick fingers being a commander of recent note not super popular, but some people building it uh, has probably drained out the rest. You can still get copies of this near 40 bucks in Europe, so might not be a bad idea to snap off one or two copies there. I've been pretty happy with grabbing Masterpiece Series stuff late in Europe that seems modest or underwhelming that has seemingly popped in North America. I've had no trouble flipping it within a 6-12 to month horizon, which is where I like to be. Um, for very solid profits, and I suspect I don't want twenty of the Lord of Extinction, but I'll take two or three. I'm I'm a little a touch surprised it took this long. Lord of Extinction is a pretty powerful card in EDH. I mean, it's like a five mana, effectively infinite, infinite a lot of the times. Um, it was really big back in the, I guess back when it was very much still called EDH. It was a very potent card. Nowadays, it's a little less so, I suppose. But I mean, this was ludicrous if you were um, had any sort of like sacrifice for toughness or to draw cards or whatever. I mean, you'd be sacking a creature that was thirty thirty. Yeah. Um, the uh, the UMA box toppers, mm-hmm. which is the extended art foils, are floating around twenty bucks still. About twenty five vendors, a couple of people with some eight and nine copies. I'm not telling anyone to go buy it, but uh, I mean, it looks pretty good compared to the. Whatchamacallit there? The Invocation. Not a card that I think is, is going to be high on their priority list to give another premium version of it. No, no, I don't think so either. Especially given that they can look back and see that the the movement has been a little, I don't want to say lackluster, but like maybe not quite as wild as they might have expected at some point in the past. So, uh, you know, if they're looking at that, they're going, well, it doesn't seem like we really need to do much with this at the moment. Den of the Bugbear ampersand promo foil stand in here for a bunch of them that have been pushing hard on TCG player. This one's supposedly going 75 to 150. The entire subset is drying up. Like these, these didn't exist when they existed as far as I'm concerned. And they're going to be 
slow, probably slow to sell, but when they sell, they're going to be very solid profits because there's just none of them around. I went ahead and snapped off a bunch in Europe again last week. I picked up Zorns at uh, 20 euro. Eye of Vecna and Hand of Vecna at 20 euro a piece. Oswald Fiddlebenders at 45. That card's been doing work in Modern lately, and it's probably underrated for Commander play. And then Tasha's Hideous Laughter is a staple in the blue-black mill deck. Grab that at 50 euros. And all of them are looking very attractive versus TCG pricing. So any cheap Mm -hmm. deals you find on an ampersand promo, you get a chance to trade into it from your binder to a friend that won one in a local tournament or whatever. I think that's a very solid option for people. Oh, yeah. I mean, anytime you could be trading up like that is usually pretty good. But, I mean, how often are you really finding these out in the wild anyways? It seems like they probably exclusively live on TCG Player. Well, and eBay to a less... And then Card Market's definitely still got the best pricing. Um, Japan seems to include well, in. I don't seem to see cheap ones in Japan too much. But I've been grabbing anything that lets get looks playable. Because some of those creature lands from AFR... First of all, I think people are totally wrong about AFR. It's talked about as a set that's like a failure that doesn't have good cards in it. (laughs) The set is very, very solid. There's lots of commander cards in there. And there's a bunch of cards in there that people don't realize have snuck into modern. Like, I was buying Den of the Bugbears. Have you read Den of the Bugbear? That's a ridiculous Uh, creature land. It's basically like a goblin rabble master on a stick. I did at one point. You mean mean on a land? On a land. (laughs) Uh, I did at some point. I don't remember it off the top of my head. Let me go look here. Hall, Hall of Storm Giants gets played in the control builds. Hive of the Eye Tyrant shows up here and there. And picked up those in the 35 to 50 euro range for the ampersands. Got some Book of Vile Darkness, which pairs with the Hand and Eye of Vecna. And of course, that's like an iconic thing. Like Vecna is this like great necromancer in the D&D world. And you have to assemble his artifacts. And then he terrible things happen. So yeah, ampersand promos bit risky in terms of being stuck holding that stuff for a while i think it's probably gonna be like guru lands like if you can get a good deal on them cool but you still have to find a buyer um but yeah i i've pushed in probably a thousand maybe 1500 on ampersand promos in the last month Guru, uh goo 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 uh <laughs> guru lands don't seem like they'd be that difficult to move uh well, I mean, maybe now that the prices have skyrocketed, but they used to be real hot in demand back when they were like 50 and 60 bucks. If you had one in your trade binder, you were getting pestered about it all day long. Repentant Vampire of Odyssey foils 10 to 22. That's probably just vampire hype. In fact, it's an old foil. I was saying Odyssey. <laughs> yeah. And then Wandering Mind foils out of Vow, 2 to $4. Just on the back of it, looking like playing better than it looked uh, in standard and modern. Um some of the those four color and five color control piles uh, or mid-range piles are running a single or two copies uh goes and finds stuff right it looks at six cards and uh yeah it's it's a lot doing some work in standard as well okay moving, so mo- moving right, interesting mix here yeah right moving right along to top magic online movers cemetery gatekeeper which is one of your darlings last week going 16 to 25 tickets on the back of standard and edh play uh oh wait uh, I put Hullbreaker, but I don't think I've got that right. Give me a second. Hullbreaker Horror. Uh, Hullbreacher, Hullbreaker. Hullbreaker Horror. It's a, it's a bad time to be a Hull. That's what's yeah, important Yeah, Hullbreacher is the band card that is sitting in my shame, box of shame. 
The <laughs> Hullbreaker Horror, on the other hand, kicked the crap out of me in draft on Arena this week. The card is so nasty. Uh Two and a half ticks to five ticks, uh, largely on the back of standard play. Thing does a lot of work in the control decks. It's got that. Uh, I forget what that blue card was like four years ago. That discarded cards, put it back in your hand. It's kind of like a dream trawler thing going. Like once the control player casts it and can protect it, you're in deep shit. Because oh yeah, I remember there was that big uh, serpent from yeah. Escape Me cons too right i think or yeah it was nobody needs to hear me think about this yeah i noticed this was really big in edh too um i put it on our list to talk about with jason earlier and it kind of caught my caught me off guard i didn't expect to see it to be that popular i I think it's going to be a spec call on this cast at some point when the foil extended arts get low enough yeah possibly uh concealed courtyard courtyard from kaladesh Three and a half ticks to almost seven ticks. That's hammer time, mostly driving that. And then Grawlnock the Omnivore from Vow went from one tickets to five. I'm presuming on the back of EDH play because I haven't seen it played in any standard decks. Grawlnock. It's a good name. Grawlnock the Omnivore. It's a guy you want to go clubbing with. He's He's got major game. It sounds like he probably listens to Joe Rogan or something. <laughs> Cards to watch this week. Let me dive in here. If you like the Box of Rock story, uh, <laughs> as, as pertained to the Arcane Signet, how about Commander Sphere from the same uh, drop? Currently get those those foils at $5 on TCG Player. It's going to go 5 to 15 I feel very confident about it. This is a... Uh, Commander Sphere is in 120,000 plus decks reported on EDH Rec. In large part because they probably included a bunch of non-foil versions in pre-constructed decks that were uh, uploaded to the site. But it's still a widely played mana rock, and it's down to 24 listing, steep ramp, and we already know what happened to the Arcane Signet from the same drop. One of the nice things about something, t- the best card in a drop taking off, is if there's a second or third best card, it may lag it by a bit, but it has all the same supply dynamics, which is very mm-hmm. nice to know. Yeah, no, I think this is great. I mean, if we know how that other card handled um, the Arcane Signet handled a lot of the secret layer, this one's certainly well positioned. I mean, Arcane Signet, his Arcane Signet became the second most popular card in all of Commander or something like that, but Commander Sphere is still way, way, way up there. Uh, so an excellent buy-in at five bucks here for these um that's that's not bad at all and let's see what are we what is the secret layer i want to go look it up oh that's that stupid dungeons and dragons one there's one of those yeah this has got the frog sitting on it i mean if you like the other arcane signet you probably like this one too <laughs> and the non-foil and foil price seems very close all right what's your first pick <laughs> now clutching the orb it found in the lake the frog let out a cloak of enlightenment <laughs> Uh, yeah, so I've stumbled upon a card here, a, a version of a card that I basically forgot existed, uh, which is uh, the Death Baron promotional copies that were, I believe, only handed out at conventions, but I'm not clear what convention this was. I didn't go looking for them. I don't think this was a GP promo. I think it was something different, uh, but I don't have an answer for you at the moment because truth be told, I, I didn't look it up, but... These are a full art um, Death Baron, the three mana 2-2 two, two that gives your skeletons and zombies 1-1 one, one, and Death Touch. But it's not full art in the new style of full art. It's the old version of full art where it still has a border on the outside, but the text box has become invisible. 
but it's a very cool looking piece of artwork and it's uh, a great version of the card. It's unique in the sense that if they do any more Death Barons in the future that have alternate art, um, they will not look like this because the bordering styles have changed. They don't do these full this full art style anymore. Yep. So they you're not going to get another one of those. Uh, so Death Baron's in 11,000 EDA track decks. Um, obviously, we're getting a big zombie bump right now, so there's going to be some extra pressure on this. If we ever get skeletons, it'll help there too. The, the, the real angle here is just the supply is very, very low. There's like eight vendors on TCG Player with copies right now, and only a handful of them are under 20 bucks. I checked a few other major stores, and nobody has any in stock. So this feels a little like cheating because there's not even that many for, for people to go look for. So, But if you can check your local stores and what have you, I think these promos at 20 bucks are a great pickup because you'll be able to sell them at 35 or 40 I don't know, a couple months down the road, maybe not even that long. CK is already paying 20 bucks credit for these, and that's what you're paying for low on TCG Player at the moment. Um, so where you can find these, I think these are a good choice. Normally I'd be like, oh yeah, but we can get them in Japan or Europe even cheaper, but not in this case. In this case, Europe is starts at 35 euro, which basically means these are $50 plus over there. And in Japan, they're sold out on Harayuya at 3,500 yen, which is about 33. So these $20 copies are a slam dunk in my mind. There's very few of them left and they're all buys. It has to be because it's this convention promo. And I don't know, again, I don't know what it is. Someone listening will know, but that's got to be the reason that these are so tight. And I, I wouldn't be, these probably, I'm assuming, were not released overseas. And, and again, everybody's building Will Held right now. So Blue Black Zombies is getting built like crazy. I just built mine last weekend. So, <laughs> you know, I built a vampire and a zombie deck lately. I'm sure lots of other people are in the same boat. And those of us that like to have fancy versions in our decks will not balk at a $20, a good-looking $20 extended art. Yeah, at this point, $20 for a premium copy is uh, like getting it for free. All right, I think that's a good one. Um, my next two selections are Crimson Vow cards. So we're using our new model here where I'm flagging a card you're definitely going to want to have uh, in your spec box, but not right now because we're on pre-order prices still. So I'm predicting what you might see the lows at here, and then it's up to you to figure out where the actual low falls and to decide when to get in, whether it's now, six months from now, whatever. First one is Welcoming Vampire. Um, the deck is showing, the card is showing good stats on EDH Rex so far, um, and I think it's like 13% of white decks uh, reported since release, since the cards were added to the site. This is just one of those cards that's going to go under the radar for some players, but then eventually they're going to see it enough on things like Command Zone where they're going to tune into how good this is and the decks that care about these kind of triggers. This is a 2-3 flyer for 3. Whenever one or more other creatures with power 2 or less enter the battlefield under your control, draw a card. Ability triggers only once each turn. Okay, so it's an auto-include in my Mardu Vampires deck, because it fits perfectly there. But you can also run this in just all sorts of different decks, because it doesn't care about tribal anything. This just cares about creatures with power 2 or less, so... You can run this in anything where you're running a bunch of creatures, but you can also, you're going to want it in token decks because this doesn't say non-token creatures, which is huge. Not having a non-token cl clause on this makes it way better. And it it triggers, there's no once, uh, there's no once per round limit. It's a once per turn limit. So if you've got a way to like 
at will execute triggers on your side of the board and produce a creature, then you can do that on your turn, the opponent's turn, the other person's turn, the other person's turn, and it starts to get very much like a Ristic study. This card is very potent, and I think everyone looked at this and immediately thought about Mentor of the Meek, which was a card. If you're like me, you got really annoyed at how many times they printed that damn thing because it was very clearly doing going to do well, uh, and now I'm blowing out. What? I'm printing like seven copies or something. Uh, I do think that this is very comparable to Mentor of the Meek. Uh, it's a better body, which is great. You not being able to get paid multiple times a turn is a little annoying, but you also don't have to pay for it. Like it, it's it's kind of like a white card. It's a white creature that basically says draw a card each turn. Yeah. Each each of your turns. That because that's how you should be playing it. That also has some upside. And if they if they printed a white creature that just said draw a card every turn, that would probably see play. And you get some additional upside here, because, like you said, if you can manage to if you can manage to set up a token, one or two turns, uh, you know, on one or two of your opponent's turns, that's a, that's very useful. So I think because I mean, if you draw three or four cards in a rotation once or twice, this card is a huge deal. So I think this is a, I think this is a good choice. Um, I'm probably. I don't know which version of this I want because we don't have an extended art, right? We just have the normal one and then this, like, what did we call this? The Fang the showcase, border? The Showcase Fang. The Showcase Border. Yeah, you... Yeah, I feel like you probably want the Showcase Borders because they printed a lot of versions of Mentor of the Meek, and I would not be surprised to see them do that with this. So grabbing the showcase border insulates you from that. Yeah, right. In my my selection here is just regular pack copies because I'm looking to brick it. The question pack, is, you've got pack foil here. Is that? Oh no, that's intentional. Yeah, that's not intentional. One second. Pack non foil. Yeah. So pack non foils. I'm targeting two dollars. It could get even cheaper. Currently, pre sales are at four or five dollars. Um, in part, this depends how the EV shifts around for Vow. Uh, Kojima Soren may have something to say about how cheap things get here um, because if you have a ridiculous high-end pull coming out of a box some stuff's going to get driven down um, I, I'm going to be looking at to brick this opening weekend if the price gets low enough and then keeping tabs on it for the next six months after that and looking for my entry it's just a good mid-tier creature lots of people building vampire decks even when they stop doing that this card's just good period so I like E. Um, I may as well jump on over to the other one here and then double back to yours. Uh, similar situation on Averbrook Caretaker, except this one's a mythic. And I, I think I want uh, foil extended arts here, not extended arts uh, or regulars. But I've been running analysis in the Best Ideas channel for the Pro Trader Discord that basically says regular copies often beat the best copies, the fanciest copies, in terms of overall ROI. So take anything I say here with a grain of salt. It's entirely possible you're just supposed to get the regular versions of this as well, um, it, especially if you're looking at percentage gains as opposed to raw gains. Uh, this is a, we talked about this last week, it's a 4-4 four, four for 6, hexproof. At the beginning of combat on your turn, put 2 plus 1 plus 1 counters on another creature, and then if you flip it, 
It's a 6-6 Hexproof that has the same ability. Sorry, <laughs> not the same ability. Puts 2 plus 1 plus 1 counters on each creature you control. And it has Hexproof and other permanents you control have Hexproof. So that's insane because it has like Avacyn Angel of Hope vibes, right? Where she's indestructible and gives all your other things indestructible. Hexproof isn't indestructible, but it prevents a lot of problems in EDH that are targeting based. Uh, still susceptible to sweepers, but this thing is still going to do a lot of work. It's also an auto include in Tovalar, which a lot of people are still building their werewolf deck for this fall. But again, like the Welcoming Vampire, you don't need this, and this doesn't need to be played in a werewolf deck. This is just a good stuff green card that is an excellent top end that can protect whatever creature combos you have going on. Oh yeah, this card is really potent, and it was the first card I put on our list to talk about with Jason. Uh, I I I'm this, I feel like we're we're uh, we're at odds with each other this week. Albert Caretaker to Acre, I feel like you actually probably want the cheapest version of this. And and part of this is, in my opinion, is that when I look at a card like this, I'm thinking about the type of player who wants to buy it. And for me, this is a kind of a more of a Timmy card, right? Because it's just a big creature that makes your other big creatures big. Like it's it leans more that way than anything else. And not that other people won't play the card, but it and the Timmy psychographic to me is a little more casual. Um, you, okay, so let me they, let me stop you there. What do you think of Abyss okay. and Angel of Hope? I sell that. I can sell that all day long. In fact, I've sold like six or seven copies of that card from Double Master Stock in the last three weeks. The and to me, they're very similar. It's not that you won't sell them, uh, but Abyssin. So Abyssin Angel of Hope is. I mean, it works well with Timmy's stuff, but it has other applications too, right? Like it gets cheated in the play and gets played in like Angel's decks and what have you. Uh, you know, it has other sort of angles of attack. Abedbrook Caretaker is sort of a, um, if you're playing like a tokens or a go wide strategy, it's useful there, but it's also just going to be good in like, I want to play big, fat, annoying creatures that beat my opponents up. Um, which, which is, I think this is much more of that type of card than like, uh, Avacyn is like it's very much like a rampaging Baylos type of card. So um, I guess I just I think about the type of player who's going to be drawn to this card, and to me in my head they're more casual and therefore more inclined to buy the cheapest version of the card. So I'd want to be getting just a larger volume of the cheaper versions with the intent of like doubling them up within six months or something. I don't know if it's going to be... Six. But I do think it's a good card. I don't know if it's going to be 6, 12, or 20, or 18 months with this one, but I think it's entirely possible that you just want regular copies. The The call here is on FEAs to go... If you get down as low as something like 12, I'd be looking to exit on them at $30 plus. But you could be right. I think, I think regular copies bricked will probably be as good, if not better. We both agree that the card is good. Oh, yeah. It's only a question of... Like, exactly which variant do you think is the best choice? And the common theme between these two picks from Vow is they have tribal implications, but they bust out beyond that. And I'm always looking for that broader synergy if I'm picking an EDH card. Oh, I mean, for Avabrook, I'm not even paying attention to the tribal version. Like, sure, it's there, but, like, this is just puts counter puts two woman counters on another creature you control, which is great. But you just pass one turn with a flash card in your hand. And now you have uh, this stupid ass hot master that 
makes it impossible to kill anything you have and is constantly pumping your team. Like, if no one has a Wrath in their hand, yeah, this is going to be a problem real quick. And, like, God forbid you have a doubling season or something. Oh, or, or creatures that can use the counters for utility, like hangerback walkers and walking ballistas and whatever. Yeah. Yep, 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 yep. So I, I, the card is very potent. The, the, the tribal thing is just, it's also there, but not the focus for me. Um, okay, so the other card I want to talk about this week is a bit different than the stuff I tend to focus on, but it caught my attention, and I feel like I should bring it up. And I was surprised that we did not have that as a pick this year. I didn't double back and check last year's sheet. But within the last calendar year, we, we have not talked about this card, which is Force of Negation, the uh, Retro Foils are what I'm looking at here. And I have Modern Horizons 1 slash 2. No, it is <laughs> Modern Horizons 1. I have on this. So I don't know what the sheet is going to look like when it makes the Discord, but I have Modern Horizons 1 slash 2 because this modern this version of the card is originally from Modern Horizons 1, but was printed in Modern Horizons 2 as one of the time shifts. So the only but, place but you could get this card was Modern Horizons 2 product. Yeah. Well, that's just it. Like this, yeah. this frame doesn't exist in MH1. So if, so if you list it as MH1, yes. they're going to go looking for it there. Right. But that's the thing is that on Scryfall and TCG player, it's listed in MH1. Yeah. I know. And the time shift card has the MH1 icon they're, on they're it. They're so wrong. It's ridiculous that they did that. Okay. But most people who are going to buy this card are not looking for the sealed product it's in. They're looking for the individual card. Whatever. We're not rehashing this argument again. I mean, bottom line, the if, point bottom be- line, if you're looking on TCG, make sure you pick you you click retro frame if you want to find it. Yeah. I mean, no the thing is nobody is going to buy Force of Negation who isn't no one's going to buy this version of the card that, that isn't just going sure. to TCG player and typing in Force of Negation. Sure. But in any case, uh the retro foils are a hundred bucks right now. So they're not cheap. And the supply is not ter- is uh, is a little it's healthy I think is a fair way to say it's sixty five vendors no one has uh, I don't think anyone has more than th- really three copies uh, the one guy has six at one hundred and fifty bucks. Brute Force Games has eight posted. Eight somewhere okay so oh yeah there it is I, I scrolled past it too quick so nope. there's some inventory out there no doubt about that no major walls force of ne- yeah no major walls but but some supply force of negation is the 12th most popular card in modern right now number 12 and that's not spells it's all cards it is also at 34,000 decks in edh rack so this is like a tier s tier a staple in the essentially the two biggest formats in magic uh so this is a big card um the sales data on retroframe foil force negation here is usually one or two a day. Uh, one today, two yesterday, one the fourth, two the twelfth, two the tenth, ninth, three eighth. So like it moves, right? Like in fact, the top there's twenty sales here, and they're all within the last uh, little over a week. So there is movement on this card at a hundred dollars. This is. I would imagine going to be the only retro frame version of this card. I'm sure we will see force of negation again. And if we do, there's a decent chance it'll have like a basic extended art style. So, and those will be relatively popular too. Um, But this is the only retro frame one. And if you think about the type of person in your life who would like to play force of negation, they're probably more inclined to buy this in retro frame than the type of person who would go buy Aberbrook caretaker. Uh, that guy probably doesn't want that in retro frame as much as the force of negation player does. 
Uh, also, the Force of Negation original foils are like 130, 140. So there's all, and those are just the normal pack foils. So the price tag here is kind of high, but I think buying these retro frame foil Force of Negations, if you can get them on sales or kickbacks or whatever at 100 ish dollars, I see these at 200 to 250. And I don't think that's in 2022, most likely. It's probably past that. But I do think there is a point in time where we look back and go, hey, remember when Travis called this for $100? Well, the last copy on TCG Player just sold. The cheapest copy is at $300, uh, but the real price will land around 2 to 250 I think that's the type of scenario we're looking at here. I agree. And you know what's interesting about this card that a lot of people may have forgotten already? There's no non-foil version. The MH- of the retro frame specifically. The MH1 cards that were brought into MH2 that were only available in collector booster packs only exist in two versions, foil version and foil etched. So there is a second version in retro frame, but it's foil etched. And those go for about 70 bucks or whatever. They're, they quite specifically did not make the, the non-foil versions of this available. I can't see them anywhere on, on TCG Player or on eBay uh, unless I'm totally messing something up but i'm pretty sure i've got that straight so i'll tell you what's going to happen with the non-foil version of this it's going to end up in the list for sure mm. that's exactly what they're going to do mm-hmm. with that they're going to throw it in the mm-hmm. list you're going to be able to pull them here and there those are going to be worth some solid money on their own because they're going to be so hard to find um but yeah there's there's nothing stopping these from being they're clearly the best version of force negation you could lean towards Russian pack foils from MH1 if you're that kind of folk, but a lot of people will be will be totally fine with snapping off the foils of this, and and you tend to buy them in a playset. Uh, they're not always played as a four in in decks that play them, but often they are, and I think you're about right. I think like give it a year, they're going to push up. You're going to see maybe the lowest price point in the year from now will be one sixty nine or something like that on TCG. Maybe it'll be two twenty. Hard to say. Don't think it's it's got any room to get another reprint within the year unless they throw it into double masters or you see the non foil of this show up in the list. So looking pretty steady. Uh, hard to bite off those hundred dollars, but say you're going to play them. I don't see you getting it cheaper in. Yeah. Yeah. All right, let's uh, go get Jason and get the show on the road here, since various dads in the room need to get to bed at some point. Yeah, they sure do. All righty, here we are, ready for the uh, Crimson Vow set review with Commander in Chief Jason Alt. How are you, sir? Did you really have to make me sit there for two hours muted while you guys did the regular <laughs> podcast? That was we we we. Like, I don't mind. Yeah. But it was a little rude. We, we did our best. James has a very specific form yeah. of masochism he indulges yeah. in. Keeping them in the waiting room forever. Sadism. Sadism. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, what are you going to do, Jason? Oh, you know, just uh, building Magic the Gathering decks and regretting it. Uh, I feel like I haven't built anything non-obvious in a while that was any good. <laughs> I was like, I have a super sweet take on... Eloise, it's gonna be a March of the Machines deck, baby, and then it's just like a bad treasure deck. <laughs> and everyone was like, Eloise is broken. I'm like, uh, okay, I play my five mana commander, it dies, and then I never get to seven mana because I'm a Demir deck, and then I just scoop. <laughs> You're really in, uh, living that the 70% lifestyle. 
Yeah, like, give me a reason not to just play Slogurk and draw my whole deck. I, I dare you. Mm-hmm. It just sounds unfun. After having done that a couple times, it's just unfun. I'm like, I don't want to do this anymore. Oh, Slogurk's hilarious, though, because then you just, like, go find your Rogue's Passage, and you're just like, who wants to die right now? Which one's he? Is that the one of the new ones? Slogurk is the one that is basically a uh, a giant ooze that gets bigger when lands go to the graveyard. And then you can bounce him to your hand to um, life from the loam. It's uh, it's pretty good. I, I like don't... it. Oh, Slogurk the Overslime. Right. I do remember this now. Just... It's only been a couple of months, which means it's been two sets. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Jason, do you like... Before we talk about... Do you like uh, Wilhelt or Giralf to lead the blue-black zombies deck? I would never build a deck like that. <laughs> okay, then. Okay, what do you think? <laughs> ignoring the EDH numbers, what do you think of Wilhelm? Um, I I was truly surprised that Wilhelm and Tovalar are number one and number two. Yeah. Um, I think that Midnight Hunt had some very interesting commanders. It it is validating to hear you say that because I also see him in that position, and I just don't really get it. Like he's not. Who, it's who wants to play this card? Yeah. Um, Wilhelm has built more than Tovalar after people clamored for years that they needed a, a a werewolf commander, then they didn't get one, and then they finally got one that kind of works with the old werewolves. Kind of not really, but kind of. And Tovalar can actually just be a, a deck that doesn't need to be a werewolf deck, and Wilhelm basically has to be a zombie deck. Uh, for those reasons, I was very surprised to see Will Helt ahead of Tovalar. Um, I I wrote in my article for um, for MTG Price today, available on mtgprice.com. <laughs> Sounds like a good site. Free for the first forty eight hours for pay, for uh, subscribers only. We did it. Um, <laughs> I said it's not my job to get mad at data, but sometimes I get mad at data. <laughs> um, hey. Brent Spiner was a treasure. Did you know he had like 12 hours to prepare for masks? He did. He really did a great job with that episode, despite it being oddly written. That was uh, that was a good one. Really anything after after season two, I think. <laughs> I just enjoyed the whole journey. <laughs> People are like, what? Data was a character uh, on Star Trek The Next Generation, the Star Trek series from the 90s. If you don't know about Star Trek The Next Generation, that means you didn't watch Reading Rainbow, because that was all the man ever talked about. <laughs> He's like, I'm going to go to the set of Star Trek, and we're going to watch Michael Dorn spend seven hours in makeup, and I'm just going to talk to him the whole time. <laughs> Apparently, apparently, a bunch of uh, Star Trek behind the scenes stuff only happened because of Reading Rainbow. Like they were, like they put like spoilers and stuff on it, and it was or uh, not spoilers, but like bloopers and stuff, and it was like one of the only places they released that content. Just kind of interesting. Yeah, I was a little. I was. I don't know. It's kind of like who's this for? Like I'm five. I'm into Reading Rainbow. <laughs> I can almost read, but I, I do not want to watch a bunch of people show up on a planet and then look at their tricorders and be like, no, let's do some political shit. Yeah, that I was, was just... <laughs> that was kind of a funny crossover. That almost feels like it must have been done for the adults because I remember watching Reading Rainbow and my dad watched Star Trek, but I didn't. And like, I had no interest in it. I was way too young at that age to care. 
I really like Star Wars. <laughs> I was not into Star Trek. I was like, they're just talking. You know, I'm going to do a lightsaber fight. I've really turned around on that. Over yeah, because you're not five years old anymore. True, true. All right, so let's uh, let's uh, jump on in here. Thou, you guys don't seem you guys don't seem impressed with this set. I see I see lots of staples. Can I finish pooping on Will Hill? You can go for it. Um, I guess I'm done. <laughs> I don't have anything specific other than just eh. Really? You just think he's boring? Uh, I think he. I think for a deck that's built that much, I'm really surprised he seems. Totally incapable of moving anything except for Tombstone Stairwell. Like, I, I get that it's really rare for a card to insanely spike something, even once. And, like, the fact that Will Hout only did Tombstone Stairwell is probably only disappointing to me, but it just seems like a really boring deck, and all of the spells on EDH rec are, like, 17 mana. Like, I I don't understand. Are you running Kindred Dominance and Necrotic Hex and Necromantic Selection? Like, what is this deck doing? It's a it's a pretty good precon, but I'm I'm I don't know. Sorry. I mean that's cer- that's certainly that's certainly data. part of it, right? I I argued on cast last week that the deck itself is probably the spec because it has mm-hmm. every chance of being an Edgar Edgar Markov kind of thing where the deck doubles or triples over time. See, for this is what I'm saying is is Wilhel is not unique or powerful. So I just I don't get why people are building him. Like who is this card for? I mean I, I mean given what Zombies maybe, wants to do, I think he's totally fine. I, I view him a lot like a Traxa. Like when I build a Traxa, I'm not worried about whether Traxa's in play or not. If Wilhelm's in play, great, but it doesn't. He doesn't need to be for the zombies deck to do what it's supposed to be doing because there's so much synergy built into the tribe at this point with like three or four hundred zombies in the game that it's pretty easy to build a, a nasty deck without worrying about whether your commander ever hits the table. If Wilhelm were an enchantment, I would not put it in a blue black zombies deck. Yeah, it's it's what I mean. It's not powerful. I mean, the way I'm building I, it is leveraging this the. The sacrifice synergies, right? So, like, you're going to do things like Grave sure. Pact or Attrition and, and Whiteboards. In which case, yeah. he does he does I mean, what you're expecting it to do. That's fine. Sure. And then when you sack your zombie, you get another zombie to yeah. sack to whatever. So you're getting double triggers on Grave exactly. Pact. That's, that's fine. Um, but there are other, I don't know. There are other zombie commanders, but who knows, man? Maybe, maybe all two thousand Wilhelm decks on EDH Record from two thousand people that just got into Magic: The Gathering because they used to play D anD D and they bought their first precon. <laughs> Could maybe it's just the first blue black zombie commander these people have encountered. The better I get at EDH, the worse I get at speculating. I have to really come back and like ground myself and remember my fundamentals. Because the more I evaluate cards in terms of how good they are in the deck and not how obvious they are to people who don't play That's EDH. That's a good point. Um, a, a good spec is obvious to someone who doesn't play EDH. Who's like, wow, you can draw your whole deck with this card plus abundance? Yeah. <laughs> 
It's a two-card combo, and then it's like, it's a card in a hundred-card deck, man. A two-card combo <laughs> when one of them is your commander is fine, yeah. but one of them is not your commander, and the other one is also not your commander? Uh, yeah, but I'm going to run eight tutors to go find it. Sure, man. And Cultivator Colossus, you take out whatever better seven drop was already in that spot, and then you add Abundance, and Abundance is fine. But drawing your whole deck's boring, and uh, I don't know. So... Abundance was a good spec because we had a little bit of time to see it coming and it was just obvious to people and someone tweeted, hey, look, Cultivator Colossus plus Abundance equals draw all your cards. And everybody went, oh, that's cool. And that's just one of those things where, like, I don't need EDH Rec for that. I just need Twitter. So the half the orders I placed for Abundance were canceled and they restocked at the new price. And <laughs> of like, course. That's just a thing that of happens course. now. And I had a hard time getting out of them as they were falling because people were like, oh, yeah, I'm not actually going to build this. So that's kind of the high stress type of spec that I've tended to avoid. And um, if you read my column on MTG price, I'm much more in favor of you have a couple weeks to see what people are actually putting in the deck. And you're going to notice you're going to notice some stuff that, like, you know, isn't super obvious, like Runo Stromkirk didn't be OK between Runo like being announced and today nothing has really gone up that didn't already go up when Morrow released that thing saying there was a card that said Krakens and octopuses or whatever. Right. Like, um, quest for Ula's, I'm talking a lot. I'm sorry. Quest for Ula's temple. That's why we have you on. And serpent of yawning depths all went up, you know, just on the basis of what Morrow said. But now, today on MTG Price, I went and drilled down. I actually looked on the EDHREC page for all the stuff that's in the deck. And there's a bunch of stuff everybody missed because they didn't think about the 100 cards that go in the deck. They just thought about, yeah, every deck's going to run Quest for Ula's Temple. And if you can get it for two bucks, cool. But if you don't want your orders canceled and you don't want to like try to race to the bottom on TCG Player to get out of your copies or like buy list them for a dollar more than you paid... Um, I, I personally like looking at some stuff. There are cards that are cheaper on Card Kingdom than on TCG Player, <laughs> and Card Kingdom still has them in stock. It's not correct. <laughs> and you really you need to you need to look at the, the the cards page. So I realize that you guys want to talk about Crimson Vow, which is cool, but my favorite thing to talk about is the cards that the cards in Crimson Vow will make go up because they are older and they are in low supply and they will spike harder. And if you have them, you'll be able to sell out of them. And if you don't have them, your order will not get canceled because no one's <laughs> like, who the heck is buying Slin Voda foils? You, you, you may have forgotten what podcast you're on. We absolutely want to talk about the cards that Crimson Vow cards will make go up in price because we know that the Crimson Vow cards are the trap and we're interested in what they're going to do to other yeah. stuff. So I think it's worth talking about what is played in Crimson Vow. This will not shock you. The top five cards in Crimson Vow right now, sorted by percentage of deck inclusion, are the five dual lands. Yeah, I got that. Um, and that is for every set, but not every cycle of dual lands is that impactful moving forward. So that's one thing that, uh, that just looking at EDH Rec Data, you go to every set, you go to like... Zendikar, return to return to Zendikar, whatever that was called. Um, Zendikar Rise. Zendikar Rising. Christopher Nolan's 
Zendikar Rises. Um, like the top five cards in there were dual lands. It, it happens in every set, but like it's not sustainable. So I think that's a bit of a trap. But also I think three dollars for a storm carved coast is pretty reasonable too so it's 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 hard to say um what what's uh going on with those lands but this is the first set i think i've seen like five or six of the top 20 cards all be legendary creatures as inclusions like torrens going in decks olivia going in decks angie um edgar Dorothea, Toxrill, those are all top twenty cards. Um, it's 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 unusual. I I did notice that the if the top commanders for the week actually have like very little uh, Val Crimson Valkyrie legendary creatures, despite those being so high from the set. Um. We're looking at 400 decks spread out over two or three weeks. Still so, early goings. Um, yeah, it's going to be hard for those to... I guess I, I, I would have expected to see the top EDH commanders for the week have been more Crimson Vow commanders, but it's still like will help. All right. Uh, let's take a look here at stuff we think our list of rares and mythics to consider that may have strong long-term play potential. Um, we've got some early stats media rec we can lean on here and then we can talk about where we how we think things might shift as the commanders they might be attached to may ebb ebb or uh, fade from uh, the consciousness of the EH community jason can you take a look at the uh, spreadsheet that i shared with you yeah i got it i got it right here on my computer so screen. we were just i called out Avabruck, Caretaker, Hollowhenge, Huntmaster as a brickable spec. What do you think about that? It's mythic. Um, I don't know what it would have to hit for me to like it. I certainly don't like it at like $13. But um, it is a pretty saucy card. I, I compared it to Indestructible Avacyn, Avacyn, Angel of Hope. In terms of its game impact. It's too easy to turn it off though. That's the only problem. Because it's it's nightbound on the back. Yeah, so somebody skips their turn. They've got it they can t- take it down with point removal. Oh, wait, is, I thought that meant they had to cast two spells, right? Oh yeah, you're right. Sorry, not skip their turn. Yeah. Cast twice. Which is relatively easy in EDH. So it's kind of hard to flip onto its back, but it's easy to flip onto its front. So I, I think it's a little clunky. Plus, it's six mana. Um, the counter it's, thing is like it's pretty saucy, but at the same time, like, are you taking out Forgotten Ancient for this? Forgotten Ancient's not good. I know. When was the last time Forgotten Ancient was good? I know. What year was that? Uh, but like. But- it's, it's just this card seems a little clunky to me. I I I could be wrong, and it, it's certainly man. I I hate making proclamations because I'm like, why would anybody play? Not skin thinner. What is what is that card from um, 
uh, the Viking set that that card that I was like, this is just a bad vizier, the menagerie. Oh, Everyone's like, well, I know exactly what you're talking about. I'm so bad with card names, but I don't but, not I'm not clear which uh, which card what the name oh, of it was. Realm, I know what you're Realm talking Walker? about. Realm Walker, there you go. Yeah, uh, I I thought that was trash, and it turns out everybody really likes to play Realm Walker and. Tell me that the one mana they save not playing Vizier the Menagerie to get half of its abilities is a very good investment I, in green. So at the st- at the top, you talked about how the better you get at EDH, the worse you get at specking on EDH cards. Now, yeah. your point about Aberrant Caretaker being easy, too easy to flip in one direction and too hard to flip in the other are very valid. Do you think that is the case of being able to recognize that? Whereas the worst players are just going to look at it and go, wow, big creature, do damage and be done with it? Um, it's it's hard to think of which deck this goes in, I guess. Like, six man is just so much. Well, it goes in Tovalar for one, which is being heavily built. The question is whether it goes beyond, it's going to just yeah. get thrown into other things. Um it would have to like i would have to see this really plummet in price oh yeah like, let's talking. just assume that no matter what card we're talking about here we're in pre-order season so everything's overpriced but let's just let's do this little experiment that we haven't done before let's each of us just says yes or no in terms of whether something is brickable at lows so on avatar caretaker i say yes you guys say both both say no i don't i i'm gonna say no okay if only to be contrarian because if we all just agree what do you say travis time, Nobody well, has to say. When you had this as your pick, I said, "I said yes." Okay. That that was my that was my take. Um, I will say that I guess I probably didn't fully appreciate at the time. The time being twenty minutes ago, <laughs> uh, the ease and difficulty of flipping this card. Yep, I think that's valid. Um, I think it's a good point from Jason. Yeah, which which we not we neither of us really addressed. We were definitely kind of Magic Christmas landing it, but I don't know if we. You know, not necessarily intentionally. So if that I is. If I play a six mana creature, I want it to do the six mana thing right away. Yeah, I mean, clearly people are playing it. They're playing it because they're excited about what it's going to look like on the backside. So I'm I'm cooler on it than I was when we talked about it up up top. Okay, I, I think it takes me from a nine to a seven on it, but I'm still a yes. Uh, okay. Let's talk about Hallbreaker Horror. Uh, this is doing nasty work on Magic Arena in draft, where every time I see it, it kills me. Um, well, it's also doing some work in standard. I mean, it's it's too good. Every cantrip is a counterspell. Or, or bounces something, guess. So yeah. it's a 7-8 for 7, flash, crack, and horror. Spell can't be countered. Whenever you cast a spell, choose up to 1, return target spell you don't control to its owner's hand, or return target non-land permanent to its owner's hand. Uh, I'm going to say yes, that at lows this is brickable. Yeah, this card's kind of insane, but again, it's seven mana, so... And I'd love it a lot more if it was a mythic than it being a rare. That was a rare. It should get pretty cheap, even if it's doing decently in standard. Currently, CK has, or CSI has them at $3. So, I would imagine we'll see these, like, somewhere between a dollar and two dollars at some point, at which point I'll grab some. This card seems very, very powerful. Like, wasn't uh, 
Whenever you cast a spell, return a spell you don't control, target spell or non-land permanent to its owner's hand. So isn't that Tide Hollow... What was his name? Yeah, uh, Tide Spout Tyrant. Tide Spout Tyrant. Who was I was lo- just going to compare this to Tide Spout Tyrant, which has gotten two printings and never really got above 10 bucks. No, but it was also... I mean, it was a big deal back when EDH was a lot newer. That was whenever you cast a spell, return target permanent to its owner's hand. It was an 8-mana 5-5. This is a 7-mana 7-8 flash that can't be countered. That also lets you counter spells. The only thing you can't do is bounce lands. But you were never really bouncing lands in EDH with Tide Spout anyways. Unless you had nothing else to bounce, which means you had went and you'd won already. Right, like... This probably replaces that for sure. Um, I don't know how much that actually gets played, but it's probably a non-zero amount because it's... I mean, you would think any blue deck uh, that's it's, going to play, that's going to be spell heavy. But it looks like um, Braids, Blue Braids, Thrix, The Sudden Storm, Vanifar, Urza, and like... Rassios and Dargo is the number one combination. That's weird. Um, it seems like anything that's either cheating it into play or reducing the mana cost or generating a ton of mana um, is what wants this. Just like regular blue decks like Talrand or something like that. Um, less interested. So um, if people are cheating your eight mana tight spot Tyrant into play, I imagine... They're not doing fair stuff with Hallbreaker Horror either. Now, whether that's using Quest for Liz Temple to go get it or, you know, doing something like all all Kraken spells cost two less, something like that. Um, I, I This is... It, it's a shame to have to play fair magic to get your unfair magic card. So it seems like... P- even though, like, the ability is super worth it, people don't want to just pay seven mana. But Flash is kind of a game changer, because then it's not your whole turn. It's their whole turn. So. Yeah. I wonder I wonder if um, I wonder if this gains ground over time, right? Like, right now, it looks like it's being played by people who are, like you said, playing the Unfair Magic or whatever, but maybe it gains gate strength as just a, a, gen- a more generically useful card than it anticipated. I, I think so, and I also think something like Liar, Disciple of the Drowned, could make great use of something like this. When you're like, all your cantrips have flashback. Well, I'd also look at mm-hmm. something like Aeruth, Tormented Prophet. One blue, red, two, four, human wizard, another commander from this set. You would draw a card, exile the top two cards of your library instead, because you want access to lots of cheap spells to make use of the ability as much as you can before they handle this thing. Because this doesn't have hexproof, they're going to kill it. So... You want to get as much out of it as you can, and then, you know, if you're in black, get it back again and do it all over again. I'm a big fan of this card. All right. So are you are you guys yes on the brickable here? I think okay. so. Yeah. Let's move on to, yeah. we talked about welcoming vampire, Jason. It was one of my other selections this week, because I'm doing selections now that can't be picked up at the target price, but just putting it on people's lists for later. Welcoming vampire, do you agree this thing is good enough to be brickable? Being white hurts this. Um, it's weird that like they gave us a vampire that can't go in a vampire deck built around any of the vampires in the set, except I guess Audric. 
Well, I just assumed they, they knew that everybody was just going to build Edgar anyway. <laughs> yeah. So it goes in the vampire deck, but like nothing that people are building this week. Um, My argument was that it has, it had, it'll go in every Mardu vampire deck forever, but doesn't need to be there. It just works anywhere. You have to- tokens well, or creatures that are popping in and out of play. Nothing about it says it has to be a vampire card. That's yeah. like what I like yeah. about it. Honestly, like if this was like welcoming Dryad, I think everybody would be like, wow, this card's nuts. And they, I think when they build a bunch of tribal decks and then put cards of that tribe in the set, I personally am biased towards seeing it as more narrow than it is. Welcoming Vampire is an upgrade on um, Mentor of the Meek, which is a very good card. Only triggering once each turn sucks. But how many times are you drawing multiple cards with Mentor the Meek when you have to pay a mana to do it each Well, time? the other thing is I've been playing plenty of Morbid Opportunist, and that card is similarly limited and still ridiculously busted. So I don't think we need relegate this to Vampire decks. I think any white deck that has a Mentor of the Meek would want to take a look at this as a second Mentor of the Meek or possibly replacing Mentor. If you're not drawing at least 1.5 cards on average every turn um paying the mana doesn't make sense and this has one more toughness and it flies it's just a better creature um in, so in Mar- if you're drawing five cards for five mana with mentor sure but if you're not i don't know i like this in that context versus caring that it's a vampire in, in markive I'm, I'm running welcoming a vampire morbid opportunist and the three two that uh costs you a life and draws you a card when something dies yeah fantastic i mean that's that's a lot of cards <laughs> uh all right so sure so but, you guys but markov specifically wants you to play those terrible one drop vampires like falcon wrath pit fighter just junk like that so this actually like rewards you for playing bad cards which is good <laughs> well because of the eminence ability you're, you're getting the ability on your turn no matter what so then whatever triggered based rotation of creatures in and out of graveyards or in and out of hands you can do is going to happen on other turns to get the extra cards yeah i, I wonder if what i said about this being a, a vampire that can't go in any of the vampire decks in the set actually helps its price bottom out faster which is what i think we're waiting for yeah i don't currently four dollars i'm looking for these close to two dollars as possible uh, so are you a yes on this, Travis and Jason? All yeah. Right. How about... I, I liked it. I liked it, uh, the showcase version, as I set up above. Here, here's my first... I'm, we won't get into versions, because that's a whole... That'll take us forever, but... Uh, Cultivator Colossus. This is my first no. Uh, yeah, cool with abundance, great. But otherwise, this is just a big, dumb green creature. And it'll see some play. But I think it's just going to blend into the background and be forgotten. But there's a big dumb green creature slot, and I, right, and you get one maybe two. Like I don't, I have big expensive green creature decks, right? I have Coma, the like eight or nine mana serpent. I don't actually know how much mana it costs because I'm I'm cheating, right? I'm tapping all my stuff to Cryptolith, right? I've got the Ave, which is basically uh everybody looked at um. Tatiova and said, this card's busted. You know what it needs? One more mana. That'll make it fair. Uh, so I have big green creature decks and I have s- stuff in the deck like Nyxborn Ancient. 
But like you don't have an unlimited number of slots for seven green mana creatures. And if you're not doing like I, I you you have fielded yeah. decks against I, me this needs that to be... would use this. But there are lots of decks that would prefer a different big creature. Yeah, like you're taking out probably Kadama for this, I would think. It's cool that it's huge and tramples, but honestly, like an EDH. Yeah, I don't know. Um, I mean, I'm willing to be wrong watching EDH rec numbers develop over the next six months. And if I see that I'm wrong, I'm certainly not going. And it looks like it's turning into another Nyxbloom Ancient. Then I'm all all about it. But for now, to me, it doesn't excite me. It, it doesn't have the same like uh, curbside appeal as triple your mana. Sure. Hey, that's a that's a tough sticking spot when you put it against stuff like that. I do think that it's um, I, I mean the ability is so good there. I think the the ability is interesting and appealing, but paying seven mana for this and the body is going to be so generic after you put it in the play. You're really paying seven mana to get that effect. The when it enters the battlefield effect. I don't know. I you're, unless you have a bunch of lands and how. How often are you casting your seven drop with a grip full of lands unless you're me playing the very specific brand of bullshit I play? When I'm like, oh, I'll bounce my ghost town. Like, if you're not me, <laughs> I, don't, I don't know how much value you're going to get from this. Yeah. I need to see it in a game. If someone just, like, without abundance just naturally, like, rips off three or four cards, I might be like, all right. But this is an ETB. For a seven mana creature to only have an ETB and then just be a big, dumb... Albeit a trampler, but just like a big dumb removal spell eater it, that it, doesn't do anything once it comes into play. I don't. I kind of hate it. It it definitely needed more. Something somewhere needed more. But then they'd have to. If this were any better, that they would have to ban it. And if it was any worse, they couldn't justify it being a mythic. This is a real. We have to design a seven mana green card every four months because we decided we had to do that. Uh, pr print sort of it a as a five mana three, three with the same ability. All right. I, you all knows on this one. This could have, <laughs> yeah, this could have been really nuts in testing. If I, all right, I next one up here is necro duality. This card is an auto include in blue, black zombies. And I'm sure that the foil extended arts given three years until the next time they come back to Innistrad, the, the, that day when they announce that these will take off but in the meantime I'm not in any rush to pick these up because they're going to get real cheap yeah I mean apparently Will House the the deck right now but I just I don't I don't care about anything this it, narrow it, it is worth noting I thought this was a rare it's a mythic so a mythic. that's going to help that 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 might change my mind to a yes but on such a on a longer horizon I don't expect to need to pick these up early at all. I expect they'll be cheap next summer, and then I'll take another look at them. Uh, this card, I think this card is, people are really going to like this card. And I don't think you have to look much beyond that. They're going to go, oh, it's doubling season, but better for zombies. So I would definitely want to buy copies of this at the low. I guess the question is what, I don't know if the low is going to be what I want it to be, I want to pay like $3 for this card, and I don't think I'm going to get that opportunity. I'm going to switch from no to a yes long term, um, given that I just realized it's mythic and not rare. 
Uh, it's currently by like pre-ordering at twenty dollars for just regular copies, and that's just crazy talk. Yeah, this is similar to Parallel Lives in in the way that Growing Ranks is similar to Parallel Lives. And do you know what Growing Ranks goes for? Well, I happen to now. <laughs> yeah, I mean it's it's a quarter like. I, I think that it reads really well. So let's just discuss it in these terms. Imagine this said, when this comes, it's the same same ability. It, it doubles non-token creatures and create, into, into creating a token. But you could choose the tribe. Then I'm all about it. But given that it just says zombies. Yeah, because then it gets, then gets played outside yeah. of... Outside of just zombies, yeah. which I, I don't think anyone will care and, about. And zombies is a top five tribe on, on your site. You know, EDH rec signals that zombies matter and will continue to matter and people will keep building them and whether it's will health or somebody else there'll be more zombie potential later and given some time given this is a mythic and not a rare the foil extended arts will be worth money uh but i'm happy to wait nice and long to find the low i don't know this doubles every some it mirrors every zombie you play every Every non-token zombie zombie like if you're playing well out, you're going to make a lot of tokens. And you're going to make it, a lot of non-tokens? And even the legendary ones, that's fine. A lot of them are going to be fine because you're going to get a come in the play effect and then be done with it. Like, this seems sick with Bloodgast, but like... There's a, there's a bunch of zombies popping in and out of the graveyard and will help builds. That that part's fine. Like, I, I don't doubt that the card's going to be playable in the zombie decks. I'm just concerned that it's only a zombie card. Yeah. I think, I th- I think it's very narrow. I... I I would have to see it get real cheap, but like, other than it being the same kind of spec as Lavisa Cold Eyes was when they said uh, we're Kaldheim Snow, everyone's like, well, barbarians. And people made money on Lavisa Cold Eyes, and they were wrong. <laughs> but were they? Because they made money. So maybe in a couple years, Necro Duality goes up <laughs> oh. because Mara does a teaser article where he's like zombies even harry yuya has this at 25 dollars pre-order that's bonkers this is the kind of card i would have expected to buy in japan for six bucks they've gotten a lot better about this yeah that's uh that's probably some 95 mtg input there yeah all right so i'm i'm saying yes but long term what are you guys saying no i i think i'm stronger on it than you two are yes okay uh overcharged amalgam uh one of the rares that looks uh very handy to have around and is a zombie and a horror but doesn't need to be played in those decks either i think this is pretty close to welcoming vampire overcharge amalgam is a 3-3 flyer for four it's got flash flying and exploit uh and when it exploits a creature you counter target spell activated ability or triggered ability that is a very flexible edh card this is insane like i would play this if it were an instant that made you sack a creature this is uh void slime right yeah if if you kept a slime this is void slime elemental right like this is i I mean you can sack uh, it you can exploit it to itself but like if you also just replace your worst creature a token usually and so mystic mystic snake is what i was thinking of yeah yeah somewhere in between them Nice thing here is it's monocolor. 
It's got zombie tribal capabilities. I, I, I don't rank it as like an S-tier staple, but this is a, a mid-tier EDH staple that'll get played for years, and they'll probably skip reprinting it for a long time. Yeah, it's just one of those like counter spells that does three things, and it's just like you buy it for 75 cents, and you're like, when did that hit 250? This is a buy for 75 cents, it hits 250. It's, it's tails Yeah, it's, it's, it's right? buy list it's... for a double from a dollar to two dollars or something. Yeah, and that's why we're we're breaking these. This this seems like a, a card that if the bar is double up buy listing, uh, this seems um, this seems okay. Well, and heaven heaven it, forbid it end up being a major factor in standard. That could really help if you if you get to lows before that happens, and then something happens that turns that on. I mean, Eska's chariot's an example. Exactly, of just like a new a new situation. Yeah, Renin Seven shows up all of a sudden. The chariot's bonkers. All right, so I've got yes long term on this. What are you guys at? I'm a no. I don't really care about this card. Okay. Jason, I'm gonna go yes. Okay. It's a spicy pick. This is a this is a. Mm, I don't want to qualify it too much. I'm just gonna say yeah. There there's a situation where you could buy this for cheap enough to when people come around this next one kicked the crap out of me in draft the other day and i tipped my hat to the player because good job hallowed haunting four mana mythic white enchantment as long as you control seven or more enchantments creatures you control have flying and vigilance whenever you cast an enchantment spell create a white spirit cleric creature token with this creature's power and toughness are each equal to the number of spirits you control so in a enchantress style deck this thing does some some significant work clogging the board this even makes. Oh, never mind. I was thinking uh, the the fact that um, Heliod made clerics mattered, but it the, it it was the fact that it made enchantments. That the cleric that Heliod makes is an enchantment. So my thing on this one is in enchantment based decks, this seems like an auto include. But are how many enchantment based decks are really out there? Well, look at the price of something that keeps getting reprinted, like. Um... I say that, and then I don't have a card ready. Uh, <laughs> well, Sterling in, Grove, in part, in part uh, because none of, of the top ten commanders give a crap sigil. about this card. It's that whatever, whenever you play a champion, you make a four-four angel, like something simple yeah, like yeah, that. Yeah. This is divine visitation. Well, that would just make the angels automatically. I'm, I'm talking sigil the empty throne, or whatever. But, that, but that's, but that's yeah, like, but divine that visitation is a good comparison because divine visitation is a relatively recent mythic. And they they are currently fourteen dollars. So do we do we? I I think Sagarda's Summons is a little bit better than Divine Visitation. Like looking at those two cards side by side, I'm like, is Sagarda's Summons really that much worse? But you've also got that Kaldheim card, Starnheim Unleashed. How's that one doing? Divine Visitation yeah. is not the same thing as Hallowed Haunting, though. Because Divine Visitation makes all your tokens 4-4 angels. So there's a lot of appeal there from a, at a couple different angles. Primarily tokens, but... Um, well, mostly tokens. Anyone who wants to build it. Mostly tokens, but like, yes. But how haunting... Tokens is a lot broader than enchantments. But that was my point, though. I like, if, if Divine Visitation is only X dollars, going to be trouble... Have, this one's going to have trouble climbing past it. And Divine Visitation's at 14. I can see this easily falling to five to eight dollars and or three to anywhere from three to eight dollars and just sitting there for ages 
Yeah, this is a, a lot more narrow than Divine Visitation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I, I'm a no on this one. Yeah, um, it would have to get real cheap, which it's. I mean, it, it sucks that it's it's a mythic, so it's it's hard for it to get truly cheap that early. But at the same time, it might help its recovery eventually, if it's you know a mythic. So. I, I, I'm a no. I think it's awesome for enchantment decks, but they're not that popular. They're not popular enough. I think as a as a mythic, if this gets to like quarters, uh, I don't hate I don't hate bricks of it because you look at something like Sigil of the Empty Throne. That this is a mana cheaper than like it's still <sighs> it's still making creatures that eventually get flying and vigilance you're gonna have seven or more enchantments in those decks. i just feel like we've already touched on other cards where i don't have to cross my fingers as hard to make it work yeah uh, yeah can i say maybe no i'm gonna <laughs> can say maybe i don't yeah, mind I get... putting a maybe in here maybe uh, i refuse to allow maybe right, well, uh, anyway put me put me down for no okay then. so saying no feels wrong though you know what? Put me down for a yes. Okay, Who cares? You're on for a yes. <laughs> None of this matters. Do what you want. Am I going to lose my job? Like, I'm fine. <laughs> Three in a red. Sorcery. Change of fortune. Discard your hand, then draw a card for each card you've discarded this turn. This seems like a secret brick to me. I've got a no in the sheet right now, but now I'm looking at it again. There are, there are so many cards that do something a little bit like this. I think they're going to print one every six That's months. That's true. Which... Which sucks when they print this exact card at three mana in two years. Yeah, I, I, I guess you're right. This, These kind of like demi-wheels are not that few and far between. We've got what? Uh, what's the one from ZNR? Valakut's Awakening. Yeah. Yeah, that's a better card. Uh, that one is make, is going to make us money. I don't know. I, I, I'd i probably be a maybe on this, but I'll go for no just because I don't need to make my life hard enough to like make a square peg fit in a round hole when I've got some obvious wins here already. I, yeah, I just, I, I just think if it's one of seven mediocre versions of a good card, sure. you could argue that like, well, if you're, you know, Zyrus or the, the locust God or something like that, you want every wheel you can get your hands on, but like, Travis, are you on now? I don't know. Yeah. Okay. Mirror hall, mimic, ghastly mimicry. This is, uh, a rare, you may have Mirhal Mimic enter the battlefield as a copy of uh, any creature on the battlefield, except it's a spirit in addition to its other types, and then you disturb it, and it turns into what followed footsteps on the backside, makes a copy of the same yeah. creature every turn. I played this in draft the other day and absolutely destroyed people. That was a good time. Uh, this seems like a pretty solid clone. Uh, do I want to brick this? I think it's going to be. I think worst, it's going to be forgotten. Worst clones are brickable, if you ask me. So you think this is a yes? Yeah. I, I I will not be surprised if you end up right, but I just think this is going to fade into the... I think our best bets in a lot of, a lot of cases are the one the, the cards that are so mechanically unique or necessary in extremely popular themes that it's hard for it to not get there. Whereas I've seen so many versions of clones just fade into the background. This is the only clone that turns into Fallen Footsteps, which is an insane magic yeah, card. Yeah, I agree. That's the only reason I'm... Everything that I said about uh, Change of Fortune kind of applies here, except for the fact that I don't know if they're going to do a clone that turns into a multi-clone like this. So this could displace some uh, other just sort of just clone clones. Yeah. 
Like, worst case scenario, this is exactly clone, but best case scenario, you're spitting out an acidic slime every turn or something. Well, I mean, something truly I mean, the heinous. beautiful thing is you usually get both. It's not like a modal card where you're picking one or the other. It's at, like you're playing the front side, then you're letting it die through natural circumstances, and then you're bringing it back to cause more havoc with the with the flip side. And you spent nine mana by that point, but you've probably done a lot of <laughs> a lot of nasty things in the in- interim, right? Like you copied somebody's nasty nasty thing whatever that might be their next blue mansion or whatever on the front side and then they killed it and you're like okay well fine i'll just copy the the, this guy over here has got the even crazier thing on the board now so now i'm making copies of that every turn that's why i think the best case scenario is better than almost any clone and it's you know the worst case scenario is that is it is exactly clone. I, i think it's breakable from power level i just think it's going to fade in the background so i'm going to keep my no but not because I wouldn't play the card. Uh, Travis, what do you say? I have mixed feelings about it. I I, I think it's a cool card with that's uh, potent, um, can do some cool stuff. But again, there's just so much competition in the world of cool cards. I just I'm not sure it makes it through the noise. All right, so you're a no. Yeah. Uh, the next one is Hollow Hinge Overlord, six mana for a four four flash wolf. Not a werewolf, notably. At the beginning of your upkeep for each creature you control that's a wolf or a werewolf, create a 2-2 green wolf creature token. I've got a yes on this, but only because this is from the... You can only get these uh, extended arts from the collector boosters, and it feels like an auto-include in Tovalar. But, I don't know. If I'm arguing against necro-duality, I don't think I get to have my cake and eat it too and call this a yes, so I'm going to go back to no. The availability, the version that's shown on EDH Rec, specifically the extended art, probably will get there just because it's only found in the CBs. Um, I feel like we can forget that we ever cared about this card and then notice in time to secure a brick. Yeah. I, I think I don't know maybe not I don't know I, I don't know how often we, like zombies can show up in a lot of planes werewolves are very Innistrad specific so things like humans and wizards and zombies are just broader generally than you know werewolves is not going to be a top five tribe on EDH rec long term they print wolves every now and then but it's it's not definitely not popular yeah, I mean, elves, zombies, dragons, vampires, goblins, humans, wizards, slivers, dinosaurs, and cats are the top ten tribes on ADH rec. Cats? Yeah. Yeah, but if you look, like, <laughs> zombies has, like, 11,000 decks, and, like, the number six, which I think is vampires, has, like, 5,000. So, like, top ten is one thing, but when the first and second place have twice as many as... Sixth and seventh yeah. place, like that. All right, so I'm going to go no on this, although it may well end up being a buy list play. Yeah, I'm no too. If that wasn't clear. Okay, mana form Hellkite, yet another mid rangey red dragon that provides card advantage. Uh, this isn't an EDH card, if you ask me. Yeah, this is the 4-4 four, for four, 4. Whenever you cast a non-creature spell, create a XX Red Dragon Illusion creature token with Flying in Haste. So I think you can play this in blue-red decks. Um, I'm just not sure 
anybody's going to care. It's pre-ordering it like close to between fifteen and twenty dollars. I think that's crazy. It's going to be bulk mythic. Would be my guess. To, to win in EDH, you need to deal a hundred and twenty damage. To win in like modern, you need to deal twenty. This is really good at helping you deal twenty damage. I don't think it's great at helping you deal one hundred and twenty damage. I. I think that this is I I, I, w- I was the one who put these cards on the list, um, so I grabbed and put it on here. I I like that it's first of all it's a it's a mythic. Second of all, it's a four mana dragon, and it's a it's a it's a four mana dragon that doesn't have a a downside really, right? Like he's he's all upside, so he's useful in that regard. But then he also has this ab- additional ability of like you just cast any of your non creatures, and now you're getting another dragon, and like it's temporary, and they're gonna be like two twos and three threes, which is whatever. But you're getting triggers for dragons having come into play and you're getting bodies to sacrifice stuff that doesn't seem terrible like it seems like there's there's definitely ways to get value out of that they'll make it appealing this very much seems like a standard boogeyman people are gonna be like man you remember you could have pre-ordered maniform hellkite for 15 bucks and now it's 40 it could be but there's 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 a lot of competition in that slot in the format, so it's not a foregone conclusion. I don't know anything about standard. That's true. It's a magic format. I don't have the the mental space for it anymore. That I mean, I guess my the reason I put it on here is because I think it's it is viable in standard and I'm not going to say modern. It is viable in standard and also seems decent in EDH. So it kind of like it's not a super strong EDH card, but it's got that cross format appeal basically. But you guys don't have to agree with me. That's fine. Well, it seems like so you're saying yes on this one. If you go on EDH, if you go on EDH rec, oh, hang on. There's not a ton of data for which decks are playing it. I mean, presumably blue red spells decks that have velocity, like that that blue red commander I mentioned earlier. Like you need to be keeping your hand full, and that commander letting you have see two cards a turn and skip your draw step. Aruth, Tormented Prophet. If you would draw a card, exile the top two cards of your library instead. Play those cards this turn. That works really well with the dragon. But outside of those, you know, is it or Jeskai builds, I don't think I'd be dying to put this in a dragon focus deck. Yeah, because it doesn't trigger off dragons. You're not running a ton of non-creature yeah. spells. Fine. I, Fine. I, I think... I think... I think this card will need a lot of help outside of EDH to do something finance-wise, which is, it's possible. I think that seems almost more like Curse of Hospitality, an aura curse that enchants a player attacking, creatures attacking enchanted player have trample, and whenever a creature deals combat damage to enchanted player, the player exiles the top card of their library until end of turn, the creature's controller that attacked may play that card and they may spend mana as though it were mana of any color to cast a spell. It's a lot of text on a magic card. <laughs> God, God forbid. So you want to be attacking a lot, and you want to, you're encouraging your friends to attack a lot to that person, because with Trample, they're going to get some points through, then they're going to get to take a look at some cards and potentially cast them for free. Um, I don't love this as a spec, because there are tons of curses that have gone basically nowhere until a curse commander showed up, 
and there is a brief spike on them, and that's probably going to fade, and they're going to go right back to the background. Yeah. Um, some of the curses are like, this isn't a curse deck thing, but it's like a um, like a Thantis the Warweaver type thing, where you just like want people to be attacking. Yeah. And this Turning your uh, creatures into, you know, uh, Robber of the Rich or whatever um, is appealing. This is certainly one of like the better encourage people to attack people curses. But that said, you're giving your opponent's card advantage. Yeah. So it puts it in a weird space where you're almost like a group slug thing. I think <laughs> that makes this very narrow. I think the fact that it's a curse is going to make people think it's more narrow than it is. But also like it's not even as good in all situations as like a, a standard curse that's worth a buck yeah if, if this only so. impacted me i can see it fitting into a bunch of decks that want to be attacking but if you yeah. throw this in to something where you don't have specific advantage in that scenario then you're just you're you're group hugging for without reason as far as i can tell <laughs> <laughs> you're giving away other people's cards that can be cast on you i don't like that it, it caught my attention as being something that um, has a, a solid effect at a, at a cheap price. Um, so you're right. It's not that the effect, the effect is solid, but it's also a very inexpensive curse, which is appealing. Do you land a yes on that? I'm going to say no. I'm not after having listened to you guys talk about it, although I'm not completely against okay. it. Moving on to Faithbound Judge slash Sinner's Judgment, a card that uh, Saffron was uh, leveraging pretty hard on stream this week to hilarity. Um, he had a crazy standard deck going that was frustrating his opponents. Uh, Defender Flying Vigilance 4-4, Spirit and Soldier. At the beginning of your upkeep, if it has two or fewer judgment counters on it, put a judgment counter on it. Once it gets three judgment counters on it, it can attack as though it didn't have defender. Then at some point it dies, you disturb it for seven mana, you curse somebody, and then at the beginning of your upkeep, you put a judgment counter on it, and when you're done with it, uh, that player is going to lose the game. My problem with this is, this is a ton of work to be doing to get rid of one person. If you're going to do this much work, you kind of want to just win the game, approach the second sun style. Cards like this that, like, kind of take one person out of the game are a real feel-bad. Like, if you look at Overwhelming Splendor, that's a top 100 saltiest cards on EDH rec card. Like, I just... Uh, if if you're making someone lose the game in a two-player game, you did it. That's It's funny. But, uh, in general, they are, they are getting away from you win the game and go towards that person loses the game type cards um and i i think people think they will be equivalently fun to play but they are the opposite this is much less i i would i would much rather just have somebody win with helix pinnacle or something than just like take me out and then i gotta spend 45 minutes watching the other two people play you know i ah it's also it's also pretty easy to disrupt right like it just ends up being an enchantment and they've got three turns to deal with it. And they see it coming a mile away because you're presumably it might be a five turn cycle that they've got a chance to deal, deal with it. If they, if their deck can't deal with it by then they deserve to lose anyway. 
Pres- presumably that's part of the the point is like yes this is obnoxious if you get knocked out but you have a long runway to resolve it, it, it it's I, a political card to some extent but all the total package is just not enough to get me excited now if this it's a lot of work to do something i don't really want to do in a game of now idiots. if the saffron deck in standard ended up randomly being good and pros picked it up and they were playing it at top level events and this mythic went to twenty dollars then sure but we're a long ways from that being true. And there's that means there's never really a great time to buy it. Well, so far they're at eight. So there's there's an entry yeah. here if that was true. But I very much doubt it will be true. It very much, it's, look, I watched it for an hour. It looked like a meme deck. He did some pretty awesome stuff. Uh, it doesn't seem like something that's going to be broadly played. Uh, anybody a yes on this? No. No. Yeah. I, I noted it because it says target player loses the game, and I was wanted to make sure we addressed this it. This next one I've got is a yes, but it is certainly worth the conversation. Cemetery Illuminator. I got to play in some draft decks on Arena this week, and it did way more work than I thought it would. One double blue, two three spirit. Okay, so it's a spirit. Cool. But again, like the Welcoming Vampire, it doesn't really need to be in a spirits deck because it has no further spirit synergies. When Cemetery Illuminator enters the battlefield or attacks, exile a card from a graveyard of your choice. You may look at the top card of your library anytime. Once each turn, you may cast a spell from the top of your library if it shares a card type with a card exiled with Cemetery Illuminator. So, you're probably going to play it, exile creature, would be my guess, and then attack with it a couple times, pass people that don't have flying blockers and can't get rid of it, and don't care about the two life loss, and then you're going to exile instant and sorcery or enchantment, and then you're going to start casting shit off the top of your deck. You can't cat play lands off the top of your deck, but this is does a lot of work for the casting cost. The, the thing that's got me giving pause is that Vizier of the Menagerie from Amonkhet is kind of a similar power level, Um and that card is down to 24 listings foil starting at $11. So if you got Vizier foils at their lows three or four years ago, you're going to get there in half a decade, but it took some time. Well, everyone's playing Realmwalker, right? Well, Realmwalker's <laughs> we're looking at as well, but Realmwalker was a buy-a-box promo, and it's a rare, not a mythic. This thing's a mythic. So... Oh, I was just mocking people for not playing Vizier the Manager. Like, <laughs> I wish they would. Well, but I, got I mean, it. both of those both of those are in fact worth comparing to because Realmwalker FEAs are still sitting around at four bucks. So Mythic foil extended arts of this thing could be sitting around at I don't know six to ten for a, a long while, and it's entirely possible that people won't realize this is a solid card to put in their they're blue decks or they're playing the kind of blue decks that don't care about this particular effect. Um, so I'm not a hundred percent sure it's a yes or a no. You guys have feelings on this one. It's the kind of card I like to play, but like it's so much less straightforward than something like thought Adele, which took forever to get there or like uh thieving skydiver. Yep. But all, like, but all of those is, are rare. Just, so that certainly matters. It's just, a, it's a lot of work. I, I don't particularly care for it. I think it, I mean, at best you're at best you're drawing a card every turn. I really like this kind of card. 
I, I play a ton of this kind of stuff. You know, Mind's Dilation. I put Mind's Dilation in just like all my blue decks. I love playing with their cards. And this is too much work. I think the card plays really well, but I worry that it's the same as Mirror Hall Mimic where it's going to fade into the background. So I'm going to, given the EDH rec stats are currently only 3% of blue decks and not say 10% plus, I'm happy to kick back, not touch this, and wait to see if the EDH rec stats catch up to how I feel about the card instead of trying to force it down my own throat. Well, 10% is kind of nuts. Necroduality is an 8% of, of yeah. blue decks for reference. Well, so far given that will help yeah and that's it's it's more narrow sure i think this is my hardest no so far and jason you're a no as well i want to like it but i i I can't it's so much work this is this is a red card worth of um, amount of work to play a a spell off the top of their deck okay uh we've got scion of opulence on here vampire noble three one for three whenever scion of opulence or another non-token vampire you control dies create a treasure token so you're rewarded for cycling your vampires in and out of the graveyard and then one sack two artifacts exile the top card of your library you may play that card this turn probably that second half is this card very much wants to be played alongside blood tokens and i'm not convinced we're going to see that theme continue to any great extent and justify slipping this into my vampire deck. Oh, it does make treasure, which has been a popular line of text the last couple of years, which is, which is better than making blood. I bet this used to make blood tokens. They're like, no, we don't need that. I don't know. This is, this is a bad card. (laughs) I think it's a fine card in the deck that it's presented in. This is from the commander deck, right? Um, but I don't, I can't, I don't yeah. think this earns a slot in Markov. Um, you, you were pretty hot on this when we talked about it last week, James. You're, you were saying it gives artifact decks a bunch of card draw and utility. Yeah, but you're never, you're never, you got to ignore the first, uh, the first line of text. Then I'm not making a pitch for it. I'm just saying James spoke highly of it last in Brea, week. It, you can ignore that it's a vampire entirely. And just focus on the second line. Sack to artifacts. Axel the top of your Osgear. Can play it, I think I mentioned. Yeah, I think that was... I don't know. You're, you're, this is what you said. Osgear, this is Osgear's exiling an artifact from the graveyard, putting two copies of that artifact back into play, which you can then sack to get a look at another card if you need to. Ah... <sighs> And it's only available, the, again, the extended art collector booster version. Now, I think I think it's very similar to a bunch of these others on reconsideration that it just it's going to fade into the background. It's going to be a forgotten card. It's, a, it's actually got, there are some decks that can make use of this thing for sure. Um, but I don't think, having built Markov just lately, I don't think it earns a slot there. So I don't think it's much of a vampire card. And yeah. I think on the artifact side of things, there are more efficient ways to be cycling stuff in and out of the yard. Yeah, I think some of these, um, some of these creature types and card types like the curse, stuff like that. I think the cards and how they're presented prime people to see them as more narrow than they are. Because oh, yeah. you could use Scion of Opulence in a non-vampire containing artifact deck where you're just churning through eggs, trying to find something and just keep casting stuff off the top or whatever. Um, that's a thing, but that has to be obvious 
to lots of people for it to yep. matter. Showcase appeal is like dubious. on this on this podcast. We're not trying to find the best case for using sign of opulence. We're guessing um, what people will do. I started off my segment by saying that the stuff has to be obvious to 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 lots right, of people. So, so, and I don't, so I don't let's look at a obvious. mythic that's super obvious that I think embodies that principle. Olivia Crimson Bride, six mana, three four, flying haste, vampire noble, iconic uh, uh, character that was used in the fairly solid animated trailer that they released for this set. When she attacks, return target creature card from your graveyard to the battlefield. Tapped and attacking, it gains when you don't control a legendary vampire. Exile this creature. This is obvious because it's iconic. It's obvious because it's a big, crazy vampire with a great effect. It's got reanimator potential way outside of vampires, but still works good in the vampires deck. And yeah, mm-hmm. this is this is just whatever. And it, and I don't think I've seen any trace of it being played in standard or modern. So it's going to get relatively cheap. Um, somewhere along the way here and then give it two or three years and it'll be $25 plus. I, re- I really want to build this now. It's because like as a sneak attack deck, this yeah, is it's a 90, it's a 99 sneak or attack, something else, something out. And then it goes in the mm-hmm. graveyard for Olivia to, to rip it back yeah. out because it's 99 or commander and it's vampire or not. There's so many angles here. And the, there's also some fancy version of this. That's got Dracula art, I'm sure. And, I think it's the three weird sisters or something, if I'm not mistaken. No, that's a different one. I thought. Mm, let me see. I think it's the three weird sisters with the cat that we talked about. No, that's that's Maybe no, that's Henrika Domathy. Yeah, the um, there's a double feature version of this. It's just like black and white with a gold border, and it just looks like absolute trash. <laughs> Oh, no, 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 no. Olivia Crimson Bride has a Fang version with amazing art. That that looks like it came out of the cartoon. Yeah, that that's... Oh, and it is Sisters of the Undead. That's Sisters of the Undead? Oh, the, yeah, because yeah, it's supposed to be his, like, vampire brides or whatever. But I think it's going to be the Fang version that's going to do the best. The Olivia Crimson Bride showcase. I would imagine foils of, of this will be over $100 at some point down the road. It does seem like if you're going to bother, the showcase is probably the best one. Captures the spirit of the card pretty well. It, it's certainly the most uh, playable outside of Vampire's decks, Vampire I've seen so far. Yeah, so I, I think this is brickable. Whatever, like if Gaming Company posts some ridiculous price on these come January lows, I will definitely bite off 10 or 20 copies. I'm okay. a yes. Are you guys yes or no on this? Yeah. Yeses? Yeses? Sure. Yeah. All right. I mean, provided it gets cheap enough. I'm not going to break this at eight, but like. Yeah. Jarelf's Visionary Stitcher, I like for the long term zombie appeal. Probably foil extended art version. The But I'd be willing to brick the non foils too. And I like it because it's going to be included in every zombie deck from here to eternity, no matter who the commander is. He can be the commander, but it doesn't have to be. And giving your zombies flying is a dimension they're not going to get from anywhere else. So, I've also played against the card on Arena, and it does a ton of work. Because every time you kill one of the relevant zombies, he just makes a token. A flying token. (laughs) 
So yeah, Giralf is probably going to get real cheap. You can get them for like two fifty right now, which means we'll probably get a shot at them at close to a dollar. And it's kind of card that, given X number of years, is going to go from like a dollar to six dollars or eight dollars. And they're not going to reprint it for ages, if ever. It's very specific to Innistrad. We've probably got at least three to four years before they come back here. And zombies in blue is not common in Magic outside of Innistrad, so. Yeah, I like Jarelf. What do you guys say? I'm not as bullish on it as you are, but I, I, I'm going to give this a yes. What about you, Travis? Oh, I'll go the other direction and say no. It just doesn't tickle me. Is there anything that we did not include on the list that's a pet card of one of yours that you think is supposed to be on the list? I put the list together. I thought it was fairly solid, uh, but I'm I, curious to see what Jared says. I know what we're missing. Edgar Markov is looking like a possible modern card in early testing. Edgar Charmed Groom. Yep. Uh, Edgar does is is does a lot more work than you think it would, because comes down. It's just like a kind of a Huntmaster esque card. And then they deal with it, they kill it, and then he just flips into the coffin and starts churning out tokens, and then eventually he just comes back. So they have to deal with it a bunch of different times. Uh, if it was a mythic, I'd be on the same page as I am with Olivia, but because it's a rare, they're going to get real cheap. And then they're going to get included in Vampire decks from Here to Eternity, and I'd pr probably the Dracula version will be a reasonable target in foils, because it's Dracula. And the next time they come around to vampires, all that shit will spike. I think we owe everyone an apology. Um, I know I do. I made fun of Audric Bloodcursed, and I thought about it for a little bit. And I realized that caring about like the blood tokens, you know, doesn't really matter. Um they're not blood tokens, they're artifacts, and you can do artifact stuff with them. So, like, who cares if you're like, I don't like having a discarded card of blood token when you just have a reckless fire weaver. Like, this is 100% a blink deck, and uh, I was wrong. I actually really am excited to build Audric, because you were just going to make an obscene number of, of blood tokens by having just real weird creatures in the deck. You know? You're going to curve out, like... A Kiri Line Slinger into Aerial Responder into Audric, and then you're just going to make like four blood tokens, and then you are just going to blink him forever, and you're going to make a hundred blood tokens, and then you're going to kill everyone with Gear Per Aether yeah. Grid, and they're going to be Aether, like, Aether Grid was the, the card that was in my mind when everybody was dissing this on social media. Because everyone wanted Audric Lunark Marshall, or the, the one that just... Yeah, like, who cares about attacking with your 3-3? Three, three? Like, Audric has combo potential, but everyone expected Audric to be like, oh, he gives your creatures double strike or whatever. And isn't that cool that you get to attack with your... People have been clamoring that they wanted a Boros deck that wasn't combat. Well, here you go. Here it is. And we, you know what? We made fun of it. Me included. I wasn't nice. I'm going to be nice now. I cannot wait to build Audric. It is going to play like the Prosper deck that everyone's building that I have no interest All right, in. But in terms of obvious, your your own rule of thumb, I think we can agree that he's probably an excellent build and probably not going to make us any money. Yeah, so I would 
maybe take a look at the stuff that's going to go in there. Because stupid cards like Inspiring Statuary that like you've been waiting for them to do something, now's that those cards time to shine. Uh, back to Edgar for a second. Were you guys yeses or noes on that? Man, I... I, I know nothing about what's going to happen in modern. Well, it's, it's still an EDH card. It's a vampire. Uh, gives plus one, plus one to all vampires, right? So it's going. And, and certainly anybody who's building Edgar Markov, the deck is going to include Edgar Charm Groom. I don't like Edgar. You know? It's white. Yeah, I mean, being white black. I think it limits the number of decks that can go in. It's basically, is that is Edgar Markov the only vampire deck? And if so, then yeah, this is fine. But being black and white is super duper awkward. Okay, so you're a no as well? Yeah. All right. And unless you guys have got anything else to add. I'm going to look like such a moron when this is a modern card, though. <laughs> well, it, it, modern is so powerful right now. This is on the fringes of modern for sure at the moment. Uh, aspiring spike five out of league with vampires the other morning and put them on the map but it's a long way to go from there to winning challenges the um anything else that we missed on this list that you guys want to talk about before i jump into a final point nothing all right uh uh yeah maybe not i i, I th- there was a there was a bunch of stuff I wanted to talk about, but I, I feel like you guys got almost all of it. You're very thorough with your brick list. All right, <laughs> uh, Kojima Soren. Let's go on record. Is Kojima Soren a thousand dollar card or a fifty dollar card? Foils, I'm talking about. In English? Yep, English or Japanese. But you can differentiate if you want to. It's it's hard to say. Like I understand, I understand that the like the cultural significance of uh, Okujima, like that that's not something that's lost on an American audience. So I don't think I'll be taken by surprise the way I was with the Liliana. Um, I knew that Liliana would be good, but I didn't know it would be ridiculous. Uh, I, I'm thinking maybe. We could see like 500 plus on like a Japanese foil or something. So Japanese foils in Japan are posted at two grand. Currently, there are still copies floating around in North America between 100 and 200, depending on who's posting them on pre-order. So is the gap going to collapse towards North American pricing or is it going to be like a mono and everything gets sent over to Japan and ends up tripling over the course of a year? I don't I don't know. Um who wants it? Like if it's gonna if it ends up in Japan just because it was more of a collectability thing, which is my suspicion. Yeah, I'm arguing it's a collector's card based on the Kojima cultural re- re- relevance, and that just like with Amano, North America is going to get caught flat-footed and end up selling copies too cheap. Now the counter case is that it's Phyrexian Vorenklex, and it is going to get there, but it's going to get cheaper than its current price and then take two years to build back up the, the ladder I, I don't see myself getting in cheap enough to to like care what happens so 150 dollar copy potentially you're not in I just, I don't know what's going to happen. Like, yeah, I mean, $150 copy for shits and giggles, sure. But like, as far as 
being sure enough to give a listener of this podcast advice on it. I don't. I think I think I'm a little more parsimonious with my words when I'm giving people advice versus when I'm just doing something stupid. I've gotten I got drunk on Brainstorm Brewery like seven years ago and I ordered 250 copies of Master of the Pearl Trident to make fun of Corbin Hustler. <laughs> so like if we're talking me, yeah, I, I do stupid stuff. But to give advice, I, I don't know. I don't I don't feel comfortable telling people to go out and spend a, a 150 bucks on something I'm less sure of than. 150 bucks of some of the the specs so far here's my my imagined worst case i'm gonna get i've been picking up copies between 70 and 150 and i'm hoping that i'm going to be able to flip them to japan even though they're english even though they're cb sourced and flip them to japan for double within 18 months that's the plan and godspeed perhaps the english the some of the copies that get delivered to me will be set copies, although I would say there's probably a one in 50 chance that's going to be true. And those will be worth two grand plus. That's the thesis. $150 copies, Travis. What's your leaning? On the, which one are we talking Pudding about again? Foils. English. $150 for English foil Kojima Sorens. Sure. I will say yes if you'll let me end the podcast. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Travis is going to bed with a yes. Uh, just really quickly for modern stuff that's that's on my radar. I think it's a pile of cards that are going to be on the fringes of modern. Cemetery Gatekeeper for Burn and Ponza. Headless Rider and Graph Reaver for if they ever pull off a Zombies deck in modern. Voice of the Blessed is an auto-include in Soul Sisters. Blood Fountain makes the food decks better, but not necessarily enough to get back into the meta. And Wash Away is a very cheap counter spell that counters free spells and flashback. It counters people's commanders. What a what a pernicious card! <laughs> yeah, that probably that's probably a brick actually. Once c- commander players realize what it does, is that a, is that a rare or an uncommon? It's an uncommon. Okay, it's not. A, it may not be brickable as an uncommon, but as a rare, it might have been. All right. Well, thanks very. Yeah, if you look at something like Raven Form, that like gets I don't know, that's common, but it just one of those cards where you're like, wow, this is played a ton, and then you'll never make any money on it. I, th- I think this has some potential, especially so, foils, but I don't like foils. So, so am I the only one who feels like Crimson Vow is basically just an extension of Midnight Hunt? They're all like kind of the same set. Uh, they are. It's called Double Feature, <laughs> and uh, it's got a lot of people upset. That was <laughs> which, is, which is why Double Feature cards are going to end up making people a bunch of money, because nobody's going to buy it, and then they're going to be rare, and then they're going to go up. It's going to be super funny. Um, all right, so... Thanks to Commander-in-Chief Jason Alt for joining us as usual to for a very EDH-focused set review, looking at cards that were potentially brickable. And uh, I look forward to hearing from you guys in the Discord as to what you've actually bricked on. Um, I think if I had to pick my like top three here, I'm probably looking at something like Welcoming Vampire, Olivia, and Avabruck Caretaker. Though I could be, I, I, Jason has definitely dampened my spirits on Caretaker. That's why I'm right. here. Uh, thanks, everybody. Where can people find you online, Jason? Uh, I'm at Jason E. Alt on Twitter, and I have a, uh, a pin post with a link to my link tree. So if you clicked on that and you were like, hey, what does Jason do? 
I'm the content manager of both EDHREC and CommandersHerald.com. I write for a site called MTG Price, you may have heard of. And I write for Cool Stuff, Inc. And I am also on the Brainstorm Brewery Magic the Gathering Finance Podcast. The number one response on Google if you type in Magic Finance, but not if you type in MTG Finance. Go figure that out. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I'm Travis uh, Allen. I'm on Twitter at WizardBumpin, B-U-M-P-I-N. And you guys can find me online at MTG Critic, as well as via my occasional articles on MTGPrice.com and my constant haunting of the ProTrader Discord. I'd also like to remind our listeners to check out the MTGPrice.com ProTrader service for just $9.99 a month or $109.99 per year. You can get early access to this podcast, fantastic articles by the best MTG finance minds in the business, and a super active Discord forum that will drive better returns and save you money. Playing and collecting Magic the Gathering. Yeah. Once again, MTG Fast Finance is proudly sponsored by Cool Stuff Inc., where you can find all sorts of cool stuff in stock, including all the best in Magic the Gathering singles, sealed product, and a plethora of other collectibles. Use the promo code FINANCE5 during checkout at CoolStuffInc.com to save 5% off your order and support our podcast. That is episode 298 in the books. Uh, Jason, always a pleasure. Thank you for joining us. It was my pleasure. <laughs> Yes. Yes. Thank it was. you, Travis. Thank you, Jason. We'll see you all next week on another episode of MTG Fast Finance. <laughs>